0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company,
1: Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, this is Ryan of Top Rope Nation. and You are listening to episode one of the Survivor Series Flashback. If you enjoy what you hear, please consider going to patreon.com slash toprope nation and becoming an official supporter of the show for as little as $1 per month. All future editions of Survivor Series Flashback will be presented exclusively to Patreon subscribers. Good evening,
0: ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Survivor Series. All right, here we go. This coming Thursday night, Thanksgiving, it's going to be live from Cleveland, Ohio. Turkey, and 50
1: the Welcome to the first in a series of special Top Rope Nation shows where we're taking a look back at the creation of the Survivor Series and the event over the years and just kind of some of our, you know best memories of the Survivor Series and what was going on behind the scenes for some of these shows because the Survivor Series is the second longest running uh, pay-per-view show in WWE slash WWF history and I know myself, this is Ryan Droste editor of Top Rope Press I know myself and uh, my friends always really enjoyed watching the Survivor Series and there's a lot of interesting stories behind uh, the creation of the show, the history of the show. Kyle my co-host here, Kyle Ross. What, what were some of your earliest memories of watching the Survivor Series as a kid? Hmm. Well, it was my earliest, my
0: earliest, earliest memory was I was really upset that I couldn't go live to the first two because they were in Cleveland and I didn't go. Several
1: they were actually, of the first few were in. Yeah, the they Ohio were
0: on. Era, right? Real Thanksgiving, real, thing, as opposed to fake Thanksgiving. No, actual <laughs> Thanksgiving they were on. And, uh, you know, I think I referenced this before on our weekly podcasts. You know, I have one of those families who thinks family's really important. And I suppose it is. And they were like, no, you're not going to a wrestling show on Thanksgiving. And I didn't. But uh, once they moved it off Thanksgiving and they came back to Cleveland in 92, I was fortunate enough to go. But, yeah, I always remember being really salty about not going either the first two years, particularly the first one. I think, it was a big
1: deal. Yeah, I I don't think I ever saw on pay-per-view a Survivor Series show live until probably the late 90s because, yeah, with it airing actually on Thanksgiving early on, there was pretty much no hope that I was going to be able to watch these shows live. Did you get any of them on pay-per-view at the time or? No, I didn't get we like my parents hate wrestling with a passion.
0: Uh, so that was another reason my uncle, whenever I went to a live WWE show as a kid, my uncle always took me Uh so we didn't. It was like I had, a, I had like a deal with my parents where like as long as I got good grades, they would order the pay-per-views. But that didn't start till like later. Yeah. Uh, so I can't remember the first time I actually watched a Survivor Series live. It may have been '96 or '97, to be honest with you. Well, I didn't. It was ironic because after I kind of made the deal with my parents, I kind of stopped liking WWE for a little bit then <laughs> too soon after like 94 95 I wouldn't have cared enough to bother them to order it so yeah I think it was like 96 was the first one I watched live
1: yeah I think it was 97 for I know me. I
0: watched live uh, so yeah that that would have been it but it was very interesting I remember they actually had the results of these first two shows in the Cleveland Plain Dealer on the for the record page where they just had random results of sporting events I thought that was cool.
1: WWF was still making the sports page in those days. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Kyle and I on our weekly Top Rope Nation show, um, we talk a little bit, well, actually we talk a lot about nostalgia and history, and we've kind of been itching to produce a show where we got to talk about the uh, memories from the 80s and the 90s of pro wrestling. We know a lot of our listeners are interested in that, so that's kind of the genesis behind the uh, project we are taking part in right now looking at the past with the Survivor Series as we lead into the... Uh, 2016 edition of the show so Kyle and I were talking and you really can't understand how this show came about uh, originally without understanding some of the background on how um, Vince McMahon's WWF throughout the 80s kind of grew into competition with Jim Crockett and uh, Ted Turner himself actually so this kind of the interesting interesting thing about the Survivor Series is that it set the stage for the wrestling wars of the 1990s, which many of our listeners probably vividly remember. And uh, Kyle, when you were a kid, were you more of a like a Crockett Promotions fan or uh, a McMahon fan? No, I was WWF almost exclusively. I don't think I started watching
0: WCW until it was WCW. You know, Vince would probably love to hear this, but again, like it was kind of my time was kind of limited because my parents hated wrestling, so I had to. um get it in where I could. I always watched all the Saturday morning syndication stuff and the Sunday morning syndication challenge was Sunday here and superstars was Saturday. And I don't think I started watching WCW regularly till like 1991, which in retrospect is a really odd time to start watching that promotion. Cause it was kind of horrible at the time, but um, right as flair was leaving. Yeah, basically it was right before <laughs> like right around super brawl, uh, which was, yeah, right when he was leaving. But, um, No, I I was definitely, as a kid, a WWF kid. Uh, And Vince McMahon would love to hear this. I always thought that the product just looked cleaner, which I'm kind of ashamed to admit now publicly on a podcast. But (laughs) when when I was a nine-year-old kid, I would just look at the two products, and I would see the glitz and the glam of WWF, and I just preferred that more at the time.
1: That's true. It was a much more slick produced show. Um, Some of it, too. I was definitely a WWF kid first. Uh, growing up and some of that both of us kind of grew up in the northern united states where uh, crockett traditionally i mean they built a fan base in the north they ran chicago a lot for example but um up here i mean as i grew up way more of my friends were into wwf and uh some of that's also due to age i mean i was a kid in the late 80s early 90s and uh we were just captivated by the larger than life characters we weren't really into the whole you know watching for an athletic match. Uh if I was a college age kid in the nineteen eighties, I think I probably would have far preferred the Crockett promotions on yeah. TBS. But uh yeah, they were they were having a lot better matches in uh in the uh, NWA and the WCW than they were in yeah. WWF at the time.
0: Now you're how many years older than or younger than me, I should say?
1: I'm, uh, I'm thirty two. So okay, I was born so in eighty
0: four. Okay, I was born in eighty. So yeah, that, that's even more guess like I came up like almost at the perfect time to be like a WWF fan where I started watching. I was like six years old and, um, you, you know, at the t- WWF was just all over TV. And that's what the kids in my school watched too. Like I didn't really hear a lot of, about the NWA at the time. I knew Ric Flair. I knew some of the big stars. Once sting started getting big, once Luger started getting big, I was aware of it. You know, I'd read the after mags when my mom would take me to the grocery store. But, um, as far as following storylines, I was far more into the WWF at this time as well.
1: Yeah, my my earliest memories of pro wrestling are right around like eighty eight, eighty nine. So kind of on the verge of what we're going to be talking about today. Okay. Um, and so a lot of what I I remember is you know going back and watching it, doing some research on my own, reading up on the behind the scenes stories of the time. Um, But yeah, I guess, you know, to to start out here, we're going to talk about the uh, 1980s Survivor Series shows today. So we're going 87 to 89. So to get us to that 1987 point, Kyle, let's just talk a little bit about Jim Crockett, Vince McMahon, and what went on with uh, TBS and Vince McMahon trying to uh, purchase time on the network. If I could just jump in real quick here. It's interesting with the history of
0: Survivor Series. And once we get into the individual shows, I'll probably spotlight this a lot more. But The two most famous Survivor Series are famous for basically behind-the-scenes reasons. There is no WrestleMania three, WrestleMania 17 equivalent with the Survivor Series. The two most famous ones, which I, I would argue are the first one and obviously the 97 version, are famous for kind of the political dealings that took place in the locker room, really nothing to do with the shows themselves in front of the camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's definitely I, fair. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, 97, we all know, was, you know, the the Montreal screw job. And then as we're about to get into here, the Survivor Series, the event itself. Yes, there was a need for a second pay-per-view on the WWE calendar at that time uh, in late 87. But <laughs> the reason that this show was created and took place when it did was clearly to fuck with Jim Crockett
1: promotions. <laughs> no doubt about it. So Jim Crockett Sr. had been a a promoter for many, many years, and it was his son, Jim Crockett Jr., that really got into the uh, hot water with Vince McMahon back and forth and the rivalry that developed in the 80s. Um, And all this came about because of Ted Turner's TBS Superstation. So in the early days of cable, you didn't really have many options as far as what to watch. There were very few national networks. Um, and Kyle would remember this better than I would. Um, but the, the Superstation, TBS, their roots went back to the uh, mid-1970s, I believe. And Ted Turner had always been a wrestling fan. He had wrestling on his network going back to the mid-70s. And uh, some of the people involved would have included the Crockett's, who I mentioned, and then a guy named Jim Barnett. And I'm sure, Kyle, you know a lot about Jim Barnett. Um I- Maybe you know more about him than I do. No? Jim <laughs> Barnett. I don't want to know Jim Barnett too well. I'll tell you that much. Ooh wee. <laughs> well, Crockett and uh, Barnett. Tommy Rich knows them a lot better than I do. Oh, I, yeah. I, I heard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Crockett and Barnett, they both um, operated under the NWA banner, right? And they swapped talent back and forth just like all the NWA promoters at the time. So this was right before Vince went national and started um, – you know, going around buying up territories or or buying their television, buying their superstars. And uh, there's a very famous story in uh, pro wrestling. It goes back to like 1984 when Vince McMahon famously bought uh, Jim Barnett's Georgia Championship Wrestling. So, Kyle, are you old enough to remember Georgia Championship Wrestling at all? No, this was before.
0: So, like, like I said, I didn't start watching wrestling until 86. So I had no, like this is something that I have only read about after the fact i obviously know tons about it now i've done a ton of reading and have like seen clips and everything um with black saturday but no this was not something that i experienced at the time
1: yeah um my dad often talks about watching georgia championship wrestling and uh one of his favorite programs that's where he first saw rick flair uh but it was a it was a show produced by jim barnett uh, it was the first nationally syndicated pro wrestling show. It was on, uh, like I said, Turner's TBS Superstation in the mid '70s. Moving forward, it was on Saturday nights in prime time. So it was, this was huge visibility for pro wrestling. Um, they actually changed the name of the show to World Championship Wrestling, which we later, you know, knew as WCW. But that was just the name of the show in uh, 1981. But Georgia Championship Wrestling was the promotion. Behind World Championship Wrestling, the television show. And Georgia Championship Wrestling was the highest rated show on cable in the early 80s. Tons of people watched this show, not just in the South, but all over the country. Um, But behind the scenes, the money just was not being managed well whatsoever, nor was the company. So Ole Anderson comes into the picture now. Ole Anderson was the head booker, he's part owner of Georgia Championship Wrestling. And uh he was booking his stars in other NWA territories across the country because they were getting all this television time on TBS. So people knew him. They could go out tour the country. And uh Georgia Championship Wrestling started to suffer financially a lot due to the mismanagement. And in the middle of 1984, so as I was just a young baby at the time, <laughs> Kyle, a little bit older than me, he's about four years old. Vince McMahon steps into the picture, and he purchased the organization. And right away, Vince closed Georgia Championship Wrestling, and he used its World Championship Wrestling time slot on TBS Superstation to air WWF programming. And this is that Black Saturday we mentioned, because when fans of Georgia Championship Wrestling tuned in on July 14th, 84, to get their weekly fix of World Championship Wrestling from Georgia, they found a young Vince McMahon with his hair slicked back, welcoming viewers to a new era for world championship wrestling. This show would now feature WWF performers. And these fans were pissed, outraged. Letters started flooding TBS, wondering where their old show went. And, uh, you know, they're used to watching the more athletic Georgia matches, and now they're getting squash matches. Kind of what the WWF featured on television and this at is the what, time. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to no, jump in. Yeah.
0: We talked about, you know, before. I think we had referenced this many times uh, on the weekly show. I don't know, can't remember what the context of why we were talking about it, but I know we have talked about it, that, you know, when WCW eventually closes up shop in 2001, there is a subset of fans that just stopped watching wrestling. And, you know, people I think now may be confused about this or shocked to learn about this, but there were definitely people who preferred one brand to the other back in these days and you know these the people who um you know i'm sure there's a lot of same people who stopped watching wrestling in 2001 were the same people who were really pissed off when vince mcmahon showed up on their tv screen in 1984
1: yeah that's been the struggle in recent years for wwe is not being able to get those people to come back into the fold Uh, the network's been something they've used to try to get the the lapsed fans back into the product maybe get them in for nostalgia reasons but yeah, a lot of them just tuned out when WCW closed down, and they've never been able to get them back. And like you said, yeah, it was kind of the same thing when uh, when this happened. So after uh, TBS had been getting all these complaints from viewers for weeks that they wanted their old show back after Black Saturday when McMahon took over the time slot, um, Ted Turner went back to Ole Anderson, and he gave him a time slot on Saturday mornings for a new promotion called Championship Wrestling from Georgia. Uh, So Oli's back into the picture now. And soon after that, uh, Turner gave another company a time slot on Sunday nights. And this was Bill Watts' Mid-South Wrestling. Both of these shows, it's worth noting, destroyed Vince's WWF television ratings on TBS. It it should also be pointed out that Mid-South, at this
0: juncture... Was had had the best TV in the business on a weekly basis. It's oh not yeah, close. No I doubt. mean they, they were just destroying everybody in in terms of episodic television. It's incredible. They have such limited stuff up on the network. It really does the promotion no justice. Um, but there's a ton of stuff out there on on YouTube. You can find it. Um, the mid south in this period was just incredible.
1: So. As there's three now, there's three promotions on TBS, including Vince McMahon's WWF. And when this happens, and Vince is finishing in uh, third place, if you know anything about Vince McMahon, he hates to get beat, he can't admit defeat. And he was absolutely pissed that he was third place out of three promotions on TBS. Another reason he was angry was he thought that when he bought Georgia Championship Wrestling, that gave him exclusive rights to pro wrestling on TBS. And uh, when Ted Turner went out and he brought in Oli and he brought in Bill Watts, uh, that kind of ruined any possible uh, working relationship between Ted Turner and Vince McMahon moving forward. So this is kind of the genesis behind what becomes the Monday Monday Night Wars in 1995, um, because Turner and McMahon, their their friendship there, whatever relationship they might have had, was kind of destroyed by what happened after Black Saturday here. I think Vince took this a lot harder. I mean, it's always been said, I think Vince McMahon spent a lot
0: more time thinking about Ted Turner than vice versa. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I, no, I, I think like this clearly like burned Vince, you know, probably burns his ass to this day that this ever happened. But, you know, Ted Turner, I'm sure that the, you know, the list of things he thinks
1: about on a given day, this is probably not very high. <laughs> That's for sure. So uh, Jim Crockett now. So he wanted to get his promotion on TBS. Um, and Ted Turner wasn't happy with Vince McMahon, um, either. So McMahon's original agreement with TBS, uh, called for WWF to film first run programming and in Atlanta to air in the Saturday night primetime time slot where Georgia championship wrestling previously was airing. Um, however, Vince was airing pre-taped material with Turner, um, while Turner was pressuring him also to film his product in Atlanta, like WCW did years later, to uh, to make good on the contract. So with um, Turner now almost ready to kick WWF off of TBS, McMahon sold his time slot, that Saturday night time slot, to Jim Crockett for $1 million. That was actually more than he had actually paid for Georgia Championship Wrestling previously. Um, so Vince has often said that he actually made a few bucks off of this deal, buying Georgia Championship Wrestling, turning around, and selling the time slot for actually more money he profited. Um, Crockett says that in buying the time slot from Vince, he basically financed the first WrestleMania, because Vince used that money to put it into uh, 1985's WrestleMania one. So that brings Jim Crockett into the fold and the Jim Crockett storyline is what's going to lead into the creation of the survivor series in 1987, because this is when Crockett promotion started putting on excellent television. Um, we'll have the creation of the four horsemen here around this time period. And uh, they'd really become the rival to Vince McMahon in the mid eighties. Yeah. I would say from
0: 1985 and 1986, it was really neck and neck. It was a legitimate competition. As we the calendar turns to 1987, and we're going to get into, you know, which is the year that the first Survivor Series happens, there were a lot of self-inflicted wounds on the Crockett side um, that began to hurt. Dusty Rhodes had run out of good ideas as Booker. Um, they really needed to turn Ric Flair babyface. Um, Ron Garvin as world champion was not a great idea. At least going into this major show, uh, their first pay per view that they wanted to do, so there was a lot of self inflicted wounds. And while it was really competitive, it turned pretty one sided pretty quick. And WrestleMania three was really the catalyst for that, I think. I you know Michael Hayes, you know take it for what you will. You know he's a good company man now, but he says a lot on you know those round tables they used to do. You know everybody across the industry when they saw WrestleMania three, if you were in a different territory, was basically like, oh shit. <laughs> We're in trouble. Wow. Yeah. And he, they, he and he was right. So yeah, um, it, it was very competitive in '85 and '86. Uh, the industry was very healthy. Um, you know, when Vince started his national expansion, a lot of different territories doing well across the country. Not just Crockett, not just WWE. But I mean, like the AWA did good business still in '84, even after they lost Hogan. Um, you know, World Class was still doing pretty good in 1984, but. Um, when 87 rolled around, Crockett definitely needed to do something, and that was get on pay-per-view as well, which only Vince had done at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, too, is that during this period, we always talk about Vince and the national expansion, but he was not the only promoter that had his eyes towards a, a national expansion. He was just the guy who went out and made it happen, and he was um, easily the most aggressive in doing so. Because, and that's
0: thing for time slots. Was, yeah. Time was unheard of. Everyone else was like, what the heck is this guy doing?
1: Yeah. Uh, Crockett for sure wanted to wanted to go national. And that's why he bought that time slot from McMahon, that Saturday night time slot. His his goal was taking Jim Crockett promotions national. And like you mentioned, the AWA, they were doing some national television with uh, ESPN, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. As was world class, world class at ESPN time slot as well. Yeah. So so this was something that many promoters were trying to do. Um, the the other two shows that were on TBS at the time that we had mentioned Bill Watts, uh, he eventually stepped aside. He ended his show on TBS and kind of deferred or put over the new Crockett uh, Saturday Night TBS show. And uh, then Jim Crockett bought out Ole Anderson's Saturday morning product. And we were left with, uh, yeah, the new Jim Crockett promotions now, kind of holding the monopoly on the TBS pro wrestling uh, product. So... What we saw, like Kyle mentioned there, going from 85 to 87 was this huge WWF national expansion, uh, pay-per-view for the first time. We had WrestleMania's 1 through 3, with 3 obviously occurring in 87. And this is where Survivor Series comes into the picture. Um, So for years now, Starrcade had been kind of like the signature event um, in the South. That went back to 83, right, Kyle? 83 83 and uh it was like uh was it always on thanksgiving yes it was thanksgiving was always
0: considered a very big night in wrestling in the 1980s i mean yeah thanksgiving was always a big night if you remember like world class always ran their huge shows on thanksgiving night too i mean the uh you know thanksgiving and christmas um was it the same yeah it would have been the same night as the first starcade world class ran a huge show uh carry von eric michael hayes loser leaves town so i mean thanksgiving was always a big night and mm-hmm. um you know crockett capitalized on that and the first uh four starcades all did really big business um you know always held you know an, ori- originally in greensboro um which was chosen because earlier in 83 you had the great um steamboat young blood versus slaughter Kernodal tag team match uh which drew the turnaway crowd um there's a great uh, series of clips on YouTube. If anyone wants to check that out, the road to Greensboro, I highly recommend watching it. Um, and then, um, you know, they went, they did Atlanta in Greensboro. They started running the, they started simulcasting in 85 and 86, which I always think is the reason that they, Vince went three locations for WrestleMania two. Um, just to try to one up that. Oh yeah. But, oh, no, uh, doubt, no doubt, Yeah. But it was always on Thanksgiving and uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> Needless to say, after 1987, it was not on Thanksgiving any longer.
1: (laughs) So that brings us to the Survivor Series. And uh, Vince kind of carrying forward all of the positive momentum he had coming off of WrestleMania 3. Decides to book the first edition of the Survivor Series on the same day as Crockett's Starcade 87. And the drama unfolds because Vince, who now has a pay-per-view hit with the WWF, told cable operators... If they carried Starcade, those cable companies would be blacklisted from access to WrestleMania 4 uh, four months later. <laughs> Which is
0: incredible that someone could say something like that. We, we should point out a couple things with that. If people are young and can't conceive, like, wait, why can't there be two pay-per-views on the same day? There was basically only one pay-per-view channel back in 1987. So you couldn't have two pay-per-view events going on at the same time. Yeah. It just it just couldn't happen that way. So people and and this was to be, of course, Crockett's first pay per view because some of those self inflicted wounds I would referenced earlier and you know good old money mismanagement had really drained the company and they needed a huge financial injection. Uh, so you know the logical step was pay per view, but Vince was not allowed. As we're about to get into, was not about to let that happen.
1: Yeah. So huge leverage play by Vince McMahon, pretty ballsy move. And, uh, yeah, it worked. It worked out for him. Um, what's
0: amazing is the few companies who actually agreed to still air, uh, Mm Starcade. Uh, we're still allowed to air WrestleMania (laughs) four.
1: So it was was like four,
0: there was four of them in the South and one of them in San Jose, which is interesting because that was like Dave Meltzer's cable company. And he always likes to tell the story. Um, so, uh, yeah, but, but they were still allowed to air WrestleMania four. So Vince was basically just bluffing, but he got enough people to buy it,
1: uh, by, by his, uh, strong arm tactics there. Yeah. In so they worked for him. So this period from November 87 into March of 88 changed the course of wrestling history. No doubt. If you if you want to look at anything that happened in the 80s outside of the creation of WrestleMania, this four-month period is probably the most interesting period in the 80s, in my opinion, because you had this drama between Starcade and the Survivor Series. Um, and then, <laughs> two months later, you had the creation of the Royal Rumble. Yes. Which Vince aired for free on the USA Network head-to-head with Jim Crockett's Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view. And then Crockett flipped that around in March, airing the first Clash of the Champions show on TBS for free, which featured the uh, time limit draw between Sting and Ric Flair, where Sting was kind of made a superstar, going for free up against Vince McMahon's WrestleMania 4 pay-per-view. So, and then the cable companies told him to knock that off.
0: All, yeah. <laughs> although, no, actually, that was the next year because uh, Crockett actually ran WrestleMania, or uh, pardon me, Clash of Champions Six, which is the. F- famous Flair Steamboat match in New Orleans that was horribly promoted against WrestleMania five. And then the cable companies were like, all right, you two are going to stop this immediately.
1: Yeah. So this is a good, uh, kind of preview of what's to come in the nineties. And this kind of set the stage for this, um, yeah, this blood war that the two companies had going into 2001. So that kind of brings us to the first Survivor Series now in '87, where we're going to start looking at the events themselves, how those unfolded, the matches, the characters involved, and uh, yeah. So we're looking in '87 at a four-match show. Uh, like we said earlier, this is the uh, the second branded WWF pay per view pay per view event after WrestleMania. So Kyle, let me get your take now, just in general, on Survivor Series '87. I think you're kind of a fan of the show, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fun show. Yeah. I really do. I think in the modern sense, it's not a blowaway show by any means. May not be considered a great show, but the show's effective. It works, you know. And two, here's the real interesting thing: when you talk about the importance of this time period in wrestling it really needs to be stated how this was kind. It wasn't the final nail in the coffin of Jim Crockett promotions, but it was pretty close. Yeah. This night. I mean, they never recovered. And one of the real interesting things is, and I don't think people harp on this fact enough, or if they have, I just have listened to the wrong people through the years. We all, you referenced this. I've referenced this. And most people know it's common knowledge that at least in the ring, Crockett would always give you a better product than WWE 10, as far as the match quality goes. Mm -hmm. Well, the real kick in the teeth from Thanksgiving night, 1987, is that this first Survivor Series show was just a better show than Starrcade '87. I mean, we—I mean, it's probably a different podcast for a different day uh, to talk about all the problems that Starrcade '87 had. Taking it out of the Carolinas was not wise. Uh, I said it earlier. Ron Garvin as the world champion going into your first pay per view—not wise. Uh, I know that a lot of people love those Flair Garvin matches, but I'm sorry, Ron Garvin is a lame duck champion. Uh, who's obviously going to lose the rematch just did not work for that show. Uh, the dusty finish with the road warriors. So uh, it, it's really, you know, that was, I think like the ultimate kick in the teeth, slap in the face that, you know, not only did Vince kind of force them off Survivor Series, he put on the better show too. I mean, we talk about the glitz and the glam, but you know, for the wrestling to be better, I mean, wow, what a disastrous night this was uh, for Jim Crockett promotions. And you know, you referenced the Royal Rumble Bunkhouse Stampede night. The Bunkhouse Stampede is one of the most awful pay-per-views ever to air on (laughs) pay-per-view. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, they had that lineup of guys and with WWE's lineup, which, you know, (laughs) they did not have the most, you know, a lot of the guys, especially at the top were not the great workers of the world, but their shows were a lot better and a lot more effective. Uh, You know, now clash one obviously destroys WrestleMania four. There's no doubt about that, but, you know, by that point you could argue the damage had already been done.
1: Oh yeah. They had the two head to head nights already before that with the yeah. Rumble and Survivor Series and Starcade. Um yeah, I was just looking here at the pay-per-view buy rates and uh WrestleMania did over twice as many um buys and as far as the buy rate goes, it looks like it was Starcade drew a three point three buy rate, uh Survivor Series drew a seven. And like you said, it was it's kind of like the ultimate choke job that Crockett's promotion would have the worst show in the ring when that was their strength going in. Yeah, uh, that's a
0: really bad show, Stargate
1: 87. You mentioned it, they took out of the Carolinas for the first time. Um, they had it in Chicago, and uh, they had it, at, if I'm not mistaken, probably the third biggest arena in Chicago at the time because it wasn't at the old Chicago Stadium. It, it no, wasn't at the Rosemont. It was at the UIC, at the was, UIC, yeah, pavilion. The UIC pavilion. pavilion. Yeah. yeah which sat about 8,000 people. So um uh, Chicago was a good city for Crockett.
0: It really was. Uh, and he was desperate because Vince, uh, you know, people always refer to WWE as New York and Crockett in the eyes of, you know, the corporate world did not want to be branded as the Southern Hick company. So he wanted to run Chicago. Um And the show did sell out, it should say, but, um, you know, the Carolinas never really forgave Jim Crockett for taking Starcade away from them. Yeah. And, you know, by the time Starrcade 88 rolls around, uh, Jim Crockett is no longer in the picture. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, Ted Turner has to step in and buy the company. Uh, but, yeah, the, the first Survivor Series, I think it's funny. When we hyped this show on the last time we taped Top Rope Nation, I had joked, and I really think it bears repeating, that when we talk about these old WWE shows... Uh, compared to the shows we review now in the present day in 2016. You know, nowadays, we always bitch about the booking and say, yeah, well, the matches are okay. It's kind of the reverse here. And it's an interesting contrast because I think you learn that booking and angles are just more important than match quality, sports fans. I hate to break it to you because survivor series 87 while it has no blowaway matches i don't know how you can't label this an effective show i really don't
1: yeah the big selling point behind the show was that there was andre the giant's first match since wrestlemania 3 yes as a bridge and this show was very much a bridge so it's you know jack snodgrass
0: wrote an article it was so i think it's been a few weeks now on toprowpress.com kind of lamenting uh the lack of importance in today's Survivor Series matches, if memory serves me correctly. It was Jack. Yeah, it was Jack. And, you know, he, he just kind of goes over some of the participants, you know, that they had in these first Survivor Series matches in the hooks compared to what you get, you know, 20-something-odd years later, and you know, into the modern ones. And they had two really hot feuds going into this show. They had Hogan Andre coming off WrestleMania three, and this, like you said, was Andre's first time back. Um, So that was the big hook. And then this kind of bridged us to the main event in early 88, when they would do the big angle with DiBiase and the the false title change on NBC. And then you had Randy Savage and the honky tonk, man, who was coming off, you know, one of those memorable angles of the time period on Saturday night's main event. So you had, and they were able to fit those feuds in the narrative of elimination matches. One thing I want to ask you, Ryan, is before we get into these individual matches, Elimination matches as a gimmick to sell a pay-per-view. So does that work in your opinion? I think it worked here. The first one it worked, but pretty quickly, and we'll get when we get into 88, 89, we're gonna see that it's not the most
1: effective gimmick. No. I think it, it works as a novelty the first time, but after that, you've seen it. You know, I don't think. I've, I've never been the type of fan that pines for an elimination match, let alone a uh, card full of them. I, yeah. I actually thought as a kid, like when I would go to the video store and I'd be renting the old Coliseum videos, a lot of times I'd turn away from the Survivor series because they bored me. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there, what, we're, I'll bring this point up more when we get to
0: 89, especially. I think it becomes really apparent. You watch the show and you're like, what is the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we get it. You know, back then, again, you got all squash matches on syndicated TV. Yeah. So, you know, the chance to see all superstars, you know, 10 of them in the ring at the same time was a big deal. That mattered, at least initially. But, you know, a couple of years in, eh, that hook really wasn't enough. Now, I think WWE did, did a real disservice to, be, to the concept itself by just making them seem unimportant. Uh these, these ones, the first go around, at least the two singles men's matches, they were important. I mean, you had two really hot feuds that you could work off of, much hotter than anything they have going today, uh, and things that people really wanted to see. They really wanted to see Hogan and Andre hook up, and they really wanted to see Savage and Honky Tonk hook up, and I compliment the booking here in the sense that they teased both feuds, but they didn't give you a ton so you wanted to see more when the show was over in both mat after both matches were done. Mm
1: -hmm. One thing I think is kind of interesting about the survivor series and the creation and the whole theory behind the event is it's pretty well documented that Vince isn't really a big tag team wrestling fan yet. He (laughs) allowed the creation of a show that was all tag matches, which is just kind of kind of an outlier. Well, it's funny because
0: the survivor it again, uh, this first one I'm not going to, I don't want to show my hand too much, but it gives you opportunities to do a lot of stories in one match. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if done correctly and it's been done well, a few times, uh, it can really work. They just get kind of lazy, I think with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when they had, um, you know, obviously again, we'll beat this to a drum, I suppose, with Hogan and Andre, this was a bridge. They had, you know, this, it was their first time being in the ring together after WrestleMania three. They clearly wanted to build to a rematch, which did happen in February Did record viewership. It's the most watched professional wrestling match of all time in this country Did 33 million viewers um, on NBC on a Friday night. And the the result of this led you to wanting to see that rematch. Uh, I mean, it was a rematch people wanted to see anyway, but I think it made you want to see it more uh, after this show was done. So in that regard, um, this was effective.
1: Yeah. So you're talking about the main event on February 5th, 88, which also had the Savage Honky Tonk. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Which was supposed to be a title change, but was not because Honky Tonk Man held up the promotion for money. <laughs> and they had to change the WrestleMania 4 booking. They decided to change the WrestleMania 4 booking around and just put Savage on, give Savage that title. Yeah. So, which I think was the smart move in retrospect.
1: Oh, yeah. So um, that's the main event with Andre and, and Hogan um, captaining being the captains of their uh, yeah. teams. You want to just start with that one? Do you want to work our way? Yeah. Up yeah. I'll second?
0: start. I'll start. With you. It's really funny here. Given if you were just to look at the people who are in this match, you would say, Oh my God, this sounds horrible. I mean, Hogan's team. I mean, you got some dog faces here. Ken Patera, who was, you know, that was a real bomb in 1987, his return. Yeah. Paul Orndorff. This was his second go around as a face. It was not nearly as hot as the first, and I think this might have been his last appearance in the company, if memory serves me correct. He had just kind of been phased out of the Heenan family in favor of Rick Rude, who was on Andre's team, and I, I think this was it for Orndorff. And then Don Morocco, um, The Rock, uh, was had just turned face here, replacing Superstar Billy Graham, who uh, was injured and his career basically ended. Um that face turn never really got going either. So he had a lot of just freshly turned faces here that were kind of terrible as faces. But you did have Bam Bam Bigelow on the mm-hmm. team. And man, watching this show, you would have thought he would have been something special.
1: Yeah, really Bam Bam, Bam was pretty hot in nineteen eighty seven.
0: Yeah, it it I mean, he got that big introduction when he came in with all the man- heel managers wanting to manage him, he turned them all down and you know, Sir Oliver Humford Inc. wasn't exactly the the greatest pick of all time, but uh, he was really over as a babyface coming into the show, um, so that was good. That was Hogan's team, and then Andre had uh, Bundy, Gang, Rude, and Butch Reed. So you know, there's not exactly a lot of great ring technicians in here, but this match is fun. I think it was a hot crowd, and the guys who should get beat and weren't protected did get beat, and um, you know Bigelow gets spotlighted pretty well, and it's a very rare not uh well he doesn't get pinned but it's a rare Hulk Hogan loss on pay-per-view for this time period.
1: Yeah, very rare. Um Meltzer gave this match 3.75 stars, which is was pretty, pretty it's not bad given the talent in the ring like you said. I no, I I would agree with that. I mean it was a real hot match
0: and the storyline was, you know, Hogan wanted Andre and they only I would love to see how a modern crowd would react to this. Because they only gave him Hogan and Andre for like a minute, and they did something where somebody had tagged Hogan, like had given him a high five after an elimination, and the referees like, no, 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 you have to get out of the ring now, because that was a tag, mm-hmm. and like Hogan protested, and it's it's weird because like I wonder if like a modern crowd would like crap all over that, but. In 87 the crowd like totally bought that as this thing where it's like oh no we really wanted to see it and we were so close when the reality is Hogan could have just tagged right back in. Yeah. But um they did a really good job of kind of um you know teasing you with that and then um Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean they, they go Hogan gets counted out in this it all that which sets up kind of a mini Saturday Night's pro, Main Event program with Bundy. Um And it leaves Bam Bam Bigelow three on one against gang Bundy and Andre. He eliminates Bundy. He eliminates the gang. People are actually buying into Bam Bam Bigelow winning this match, which is incredible to me and a sign of how over he was. But then Andre gets the pin. Um, He's the sole survivor. And that sets up, you know, the the match at the main event that we spoke of. I think it's a really fun match, to be honest with you.
1: And. Probably the best match on the card, would you agree, is the uh, the strike force, Bulldogs, Rougeau, uh, and Young's. Yeah, the tag Stallions. team match. Yeah.
0: Um, I don't think
1: it's s- like
0: significantly better than the main event, but it's better. Yeah. It's uh, pretty close. I would go like four stars probably ish if yeah. we're gonna if we're gonna assign star ratings here. It's weird because we you talk about Vince not liking tag teams. This match has literally no story to it. I find <laughs> it one of the most interesting WWE pay-per-view matches ever. I really mean that because you had the strike. You had Strike Force Martel and Santana had just won the titles from the Hart Foundation, so they're the captains. By the way, uh, what a deep tag roster, and it becomes even deeper the following year when we talk about it in '88 compared to you know now.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say,
0: just looking at this I mean, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. And this was the height of tag team wrestling in this country, yeah. uh, was this time period. I mean, Crockett had a ton of great ta- teams as well, uh, as well during this period.
1: Yeah, this, this match really showcases the, the tag team talent. So just to list them off, you got got force, the Bulldogs, the Killer Bees, the Rougeos, the Young Stallions, which were Jim Powers and Paul Roma. And then on the other at, side at, of the yeah. ring, you've got Demolition, Bolsheviks, the Dream Team of Dino Bravo and Greg Valentine, the Hart Foundation, uh, and the Islanders. So yeah, this is a relative who's who of uh, 1980s pro wrestling tag team stars. There's
0: still some dogs in there. I mean, the new Dream Team was pretty horrible. I think both guys like absolutely hated working together. Valentine <laughs> and Bravo. I remember. I think they just like loathed that team. That was. It's funny because Bruce Beefcake was not a good worker, but because of that, the original Dream Team he and Valentine worked so much better because Valentine just did 90% of the work and it was just kind of understood that that's the way the team would work. Yeah. Uh, whereas both Valentine and Bravo kind of wanted to be the horse of the team and it just, it was a disaster, really. Um, you know, but it's weird. What's weird about this match is, so you have the two teams that just did the title change and they don't factor really into the finish of the match at all. Strikeforce goes out kind of early and the hearts kind of go out with a whimper too. and the winners wind up being the killer bees and the young stallions. I have no idea and have never heard a definitive answer as to why those two teams were selected to go over because they weren't doing anything on TV at the time. Like the killer bees were like really past the, I mean, they weren't even being pushed on TV during this period yeah, at yeah. all. Like, and the young stallions were kind of just like a job or, t- I mean, I think they, Earlier in the year, if I remember, they got a non-title win on TV over the Hearts. But if memory serves me correct, they had already jobbed back to him on a Saturday Night's Main Event. So what an odd choice. I guess they just wanted baby faces to go over here, and they didn't want it to be strike force. So they just picked two random teams. But I can't really think of a match like this in WWE history. Because this match goes like 40 minutes. Where you just have random winners. You know, yeah. I I really cannot think of anything
1: comparable in the history of this company to this match. I really mean that. Uh, Jim Brunzel, I see that guy every summer. He comes here for the uh, Tragos Thez Hall of Fame. Maybe next oh, I summer I will friends ask him or something like no, that. No, okay. but I could probably get him on the show, get an interview okay. with him. Oh, we'll ask him sometime in the future what the okay. thinking was. But if he if he even knows himself what the thinking was behind this, but yeah, I would love. Honest to God, I would love it.
0: Like, there's been you know so many things. You know, twenty, you know thirty years later, we just kind of know now. I have no idea what the reasoning was behind killer bees and young stallions going over in this, except that they just wanted baby fate, because, you know, it was rare to end a show in this time period with a heel winning the main event, and they did that. So I assume they just wanted some baby faces to win, and they just chose this. But looking at the heel side, Ryan, it was very clear that demolition was in line for a big push, and they, they would, of course, win the titles at WrestleMania Four. Um, what did you think about them as heels? It was kind of one of the first instances I can remember as a kid where it was like you kind of like thought the heels were cool and just wished they were baby faces.
1: Yeah, that's what exactly what I was gonna say it's It's one of the first times I can think of where you had like the cool the cool heels, yeah, I mean, they had the awesome theme song <laughs> yeah, one of Rick my all time or- favorite wrestling theme songs is the demolition theme song. They had the like the kiss face paint um pretty cool outfits yeah it was you could see how like maybe the older guys in the crowd would cheer demolition despite being heels
0: i I remember and wwf during this period was like the least smarky crowd you could find but I remember even at WrestleMania 4 when they do do that title change, which like everybody saw coming, there were like even little kids in the crowd popping for when Demolition meets Strike Force because Strike Force drew no reaction at that show. Yeah. I mean, part of it was it was at the Trump Plaza and you are about three and a half hours in, but I mean, they drew no reaction as a babyface, which was crazy. And it was very, again, it, it's so funny that Strike Force got to hold onto the belts for that long because it was clear watching this match, they already had the idea that demolition was gonna be the next champs. So they just had to figure out a time to do it because they were protected here. Uh they get disqualified. They don't even get pinned. So that's something else that works, you know. Okay, they didn't want to put them over, but they get protected and still look strong and, you know, go on to win the titles. The other team that I wanted to highlight here real quick was the Islanders, who I thought were really underrated during mm-hmm. this time period. Yeah. Um they had some great matches with Strike Force at the House shows during this time period, if if people want to look those up. I think um, there's one in Philly that's just like really good from either September or October of this. And, you know, they were like the hottest heel team, I would argue, at this time period. Um, they were at feuding with Martel and Santana when they won the titles, actually. They, they were the, involved in that breakup angle that led to Tom Zink winning the promotion when it was the Can-Am Connection. And uh, it was kind of weird. The Islanders, they just... They're the last team out here, and they, uh, they you know, they kind of they just sort of fade out. Um, you know, Tom will wind up quitting the promotion the next year anyway, but, um, and of course they have the infamous, you know, dog napping angle, which kind of dropped them down the pecking order. But I thought the Islanders
1: were great during
0: this time period.
1: It's interesting because we were talking about the long-term picture and how how well these stories were built by WWF at the time with the Andre Hogan stuff and Honky Tonk Man and Savage um but it's it would seem from looking at this match like the uh the future picture of the tag division wasn't as well scripted because that main event show in February 88 you're talking about and we we mentioned earlier uh it featured Strike Force against the Heart Foundation so the fact that both of those teams were kind of eliminated from this match with a whimper, as you said, that's, that's kind of head-scratching.
0: Yeah, it, was, it is just kind of weird that they didn't highlight the champions. Now, I mean, they worked against each other on the house shows. There's a six-man cage match that could be found. Uh, I can't remember if it was at MSG or if it was at Boston Garden, but it was after this show. It was Savage and Strike Force against Honky and the Hearts. Mm, yeah, that, I,
1: I've seen that match. I remember that okay. match.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's cool. And they, you know, again, they do the lame escape the cage rules, but it's kind of crazy with six guys seeing that. So it, it's it's yeah. kind of interesting. But you know, yes, Strike Force and Hearts were feuding, but it wasn't like a hot feud after this. I think again, the one clear objective that they had was demolition was getting the titles, but you know that wasn't for another like five months. Yeah, so. They kind of were just sort of killing time in the tag division, I think, between Survivor Series and WrestleMania Four. And again, they did do the stupid dog napping angle between the British Bulldogs and the Islanders. But um, yeah, other than that, you know, uh, yeah, but there, like I said, it's weird. There's not
1: a real narrative to this match. Yeah, compared to the other ones. So the other two. So this is a four match show. The other two matches are. Um... I guess the opener is kind of a fun match with Savage involved with a uh, honky tonk man. Yeah. Um, but there's also a women's match. Um, like I said, neither of these matches were anything off the charts, um, but it is interesting that WWF put a uh, survivor series women's match out there in 1987. Um, so just to mention who was involved, Rock and Robin, fabulous Moolah, the jumping bomb angels, uh, and Velvet McIntyre took on Don Marie, not that Don Marie, no. Donna Christianello, Sensational Sherry, and the Glamour Girls, who were Judy Martin and Leilani Kai. Thoughts on this match, Kyle? Again, it's better than you expect because, and it's almost solely owed to the Jumping Bot
0: Angels. Who you talk about random? We talked about that the finish of the tag team match being random. Has there ever been a more random? signing by Vince McMahon than the jumping bomb angels in 1987. <laughs> you talk about, you talk about an act that like just did not fit what they were doing. I mean, they were so far and above everyone in this match. It was just like comical to watch. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, and they got over, man. Uh, there's believe it or not, a really good match. That they do with the glamor girls at a show on MSG around this time. And then they, you know, the very short lived women's tag team titles, which I think were just created to put over the jumping bomb angels. They, uh, they win them at the first Royal Rumble show on the USA network uh, in a two out of three falls back. So there actually was a storyline purpose here to kind of get the jumping bomb angels, glamor girls, short lived feud going. Um, but you know, on the bad side, you have fabulous moolah being booed unmercifully as a baby face. It's like, it's really funny to watch like, uh, Sherry, she had lost that title she had the whole time to uh, Sensational Sherry, and um, they just kind of, they they had Sherry turn heel, and Moolah just had to kind of become a de facto babyface, and my God, did that not work at all. I mean, she is, she's the babyface captain, and she is booed horribly every time you get in the ring. I talked about, like, WWE fans, you know, at this time period not being the smarkiest. My God, this was like a Philly crowd. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that the Richfield the, the, that was the kind of treatment she got from Richfield Coliseum here. It's it's hilarious to be watched. And, you know, I don't mean to be mean, but um, who hit uh, Don Marie and Donna Cristinello with the ugly stick? Ooh, Ooh. Boy. Oh, boy. they pulled them straight. I think they pulled them straight out of the trailer park, man. I mean, oh. and, and they go and they go in short order, too. But yikes. <laughs> Kevin Dunn was not on the booking committee in 1987. I can tell you that he Kevin Dunn would not let those two go through the curtain. I can
1: tell you that much. Oh, man. And that uh, <laughs> brings us to the opener, which we've we've already mentioned, but uh, it was Savage's team versus a Honky Tonk Man, and the, and the big thing is here, Honky Tonk Man over the years kind of become kind of a joke, uh, but at the time in '87 he was a big time draw. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. Oh yeah, he, he I mean he was doing huge business with Savage
0: at, at MSG around this period. Yeah, I mean again, you, you know you had Hogan house shows, and I think these two. Um, would headline the other one, and that, that was, you know, it's a lot better than business than Raw and SmackDown are doing these days. With the- <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Um, but yeah, I mean, Honky, yeah, it's funny. He kind of jumped the shark before he lost his title, I think. Like, it was clearly, like, overdue for him to get, you know, which is why him getting squashed by the Ultimate Warrior worked so well, I think. Mm-hmm. But, he was hot at this period. I mean, he really was doing the greatest intercontinental champion of all time gimmick, um, you know. Which it's funny. I think it's kind of lost its you know sarcasm through the years. I think he just kind of thinks it, which is wrong. But um, it, it it was it was good. And I know the ending's kind of cheap here with him just running out on the match. But again, it fit into his character, and you know he was it was kind of like okay, well, I want to still see Savage kick his ass. So. Uh, it worked, and um, it was it was kind of interesting. You know, the, the babyface team was much stronger in this match uh, than the heel team. I mean, th- this is uh, a match where you you look at the two sides, and it, it's pretty obvious which one's going to go over. I mean, when you have Savage, Steamboat, Jake Roberts, uh, Jim Duggan, and Brutus Beefcake uh, against the guys Honky had,
1: um, pretty one sided. Yeah, eighty seven was a huge year for Randy Savage. He went from uh, WrestleMania three and the, the great match with Steamboat, and from being a bona fide big time heel on the company to becoming one of the top babyface guys by the end of the year. So, yeah, and that was the angle on Saturday Night's Main Event that really cemented it, the birth of the Mega
0: Powers when H- Hogan came out and saved them. Of course, uh, that you know kind of officially turned him face because the crowd didn't like. It was a weird babyface turn. He didn't really do anything. To turn babyface, if you remember, he just sort of like didn't like the honky talk man calling himself the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, and that led to the match at Saturday's main event. And then you know when he got hit with the guitar and Hogan saved him, that's what really cemented him as a babyface. Mm-hmm. It was weird to see him teaming with Steamboat. You know, you talk about yeah. Savage's year in '87. Here they are. They're they're coming off the huge feud at the start of the year. Now they're teaming up. I think they addressed it. I could be mistaken. I think they actually addressed that in an interview on the syndicated TV, um, which was okay. Um, to do, I mean, as as long as you, it's better than not acknowledging it. I mean, there's going to be some, um, teammates that we see in the future survivors. They don't even acknowledge the history and that's kind of upsetting. But, um, yeah, I thought this, this worked. it was basically the three guys that had heat with honky. Most are the ones who survived Savage steamboat and Roberts, uh, you know, Honky had beaten Steamboat for the IC title. He had beaten Roberts at WrestleMania. So those three guys survive um, with Honky just walking out of the match at the end after his team, um, you know, kind of got dominated. He had, what, Ron Bass, Danny Davis, Hercules, and Harley Race, I think. Yeah, uh, I had, yeah it was the team. So, you know, that was kind of a pretty weak team. We also had our first lazy double elimination take place, the, a staple of Survivor Series booking with Duggan and Race doing a double countout. mm mm-hmm. Double count outs, you know, take a drink every time there's a double count out or double DQ in one of these Survivor Series matches.
1: Yeah. So I think it kind of wraps up 87. Anything else you wanted to say about that show?
0: No, I, I thought I just thought it was effective as a bridge. Like I said, I, that's the point I wanted to make. I don't think no match was bad on this. I would give every match on this show, even the women's match. I'm telling you, the Jumping Bob Angels really do a hell of a job carrying that and get over I'd give like every match on this show between like three and three and a half stars probably or three and four stars. I'd give the the tag team one like four probably
1: Meltzer gave the women's match two stars and the uh, opener with Savage two and a quarter. Okay. He's That's a little lower than me. Dave yeah. was very anti WWF. Oh yeah. He was, he was like front front row for all the biggest, uh, <laughs> all the biggest uh, Crockett shows at the
0: time. Yeah. He was wearing those mediums next to Brad muster all the time. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, yeah, this was definitely it was it was a show to set up a later show, you could say. It it wasn't the type of uh pay-per-view event where things culminated. It was setting up something for down the line. So, in that in that sense, it was definitely a success, no doubt about it. It set up that February main event show that did the biggest crowd or the biggest uh television audience in in US wrestling history. So, 88 the next year. Did you think this was a step down or a step up? Step
0: down. Okay, Uh, good.
1: Business was down. Oh, good. Oh, was I being (laughs) tested there? I I didn't
0: know that. Uh, No, it did. The business wasn't as good. I know uh, the Richfield Coliseum, it didn't uh, sell out uh, like the the 87 did. The crowd wasn't as hot. Uh, The one noticeable change change um on the card is no women's match here they did still do the tag teams the 10 on 10 elimination but they spread the men out through three matches and you it's funny that that doesn't sound like a lot but you could start to see how thin the roster was actually by that because there were some really really weak guys that got to work this show Yeah, And there were some subs. One of the interesting things that not a lot of people talk about uh, with this time period of WWF, there was a pretty significant roster turnover in late in kind of the summer to the fall of 1988. A lot of the guys who were key parts of that national expansion were being phased out, and some new guys were being brought in. So um, there's some signs of that here, but, you know, in some cases, they're just, you know... it's pretty amazing to think that they did not have 15 quality baby faces or heels on the roster.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's Yeah, it's a transitional time for WWF, yeah. no doubt I, about
0: it. I mean, they, they brought in Arnon Tully. Mm-hmm. They brought in the Rockers, as far as the tag team division goes around this time. Yeah. Uh, big, bo- big Boss Man obviously plays a major role in this show. He was relatively new in this time period. Kurt Hennig. Kurt, yes. Um, trying to think who were some of the other interesting people that were brought in during this time
1: yeah because there's some other people on the show that were around the previous year they just weren't featured in the matches right. like uh dibiase for example
0: well yeah we should bring up by the way uh one of the real highlights of that first survivor series if you've never seen it is ted dibiase taking us into his home for his thanksgiving that needs to be that's just <laughs> they show all the clips of him like you know kicking kids out of the pool and stuff it, what character introduction that was
1: such an awesome character and uh yeah. yeah that that character was entirely meant to be if Vince McMahon was a professional wrestler yes. this would be him I actually asked Ted DiBiase about that one time and that's how that's how he said he was he was uh sold on the character was that uh if Vince were a wrestler you would be him
0: this is how yes, he would Yeah. The famous Pat Patterson call when they wouldn't tell him the gimmick. And that's all Pat would tell him. He's like, all I'll tell you is that if Vince McMahon was gonna be a pro wrestler, this is the gimmick he would be. Yeah. And the rest is history. But you know, there were other guys, the guys that were being phased out here in 88, um, you know, Don Morocco junkyard dog, uh, the killer bees had one foot out the door here. Um, so, you know, guys who had been around for a couple of years were being shown the door. Um, so, yeah. And then by 1989, the, the roster
1: looks a lot different. Yeah. this show also features a young Owen Hart, by the way, also as yes. the Blue Blazer yes. on the Ultimate Warriors team. So um, it's it's again, it's a format show, like Kyle said, a bit of a step down from the year prior, but some real star power, big time star power on this show. Uh, so they opened up with a big tag team match again, uh, kind of continuing that. From the previous year, so again, we had the Bulldogs, the Heart Foundation, this time on the same side. Uh, The Powers of Pain, Barbarian, the Warlord, the Rockers, who, like you said, were new to the company, and the Young Stallions. Thoughts on that team?
0: I don't know if I'm in the minority here, but I like this match better than the 87 match. And, you know, the demos, Powers of Pain storyline is, I think, the make-or-break element for most people. And some people think it's a little convoluted and weighs the match down. But, man, the first 25 minutes of this match are as good as any 25 minutes of any match in this company in the 1980s. I'm dead serious. This is one of the best WWF matches of the 1980s.
1: I remember watching this show like years later, when uh, in the mid 90s, I was obsessed with Brett and Sean. They were my favorite wrestlers, even though they hated each other. Yes. Brett and Sean on the same on team. the here. same team, going back and watching this and having my mind be blown. Yeah. Yeah. So, he- yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I just I think that the tag division was actually stronger in 1988. I mean, you get to the heel side in a second than it was uh, in 87, mainly because the Rockers and the Buster's were now in the fold. But yeah, th- this is one of the best. Matches of the 1980s of WWE, in my opinion, it's just great. I and mean, again, they give them like 40 something minutes. This is a long match by that era's standards. Yeah, and yeah, you, you know, they, they do the um the big double turn, obviously with Demolition and Powers of Pain. I wrote a little bit about it in the Mister Fuji biography when he passed away a few a few months ago. But um you know, was it a little clumsily done? Yes, was it. Bret Hart, Steve Austin in terms of double turns. No, but it got the demos on the right side. We talked about it a little bit last year or in the when we covered the last year's show, uh, the the 87 show, that the demolition really, it was only a matter of time before they became baby faces. And this match puts them on the baby face side. So it was always so unfair that they were just branded as road warrior ripoffs because they were very over and they held the titles for a really long time when this division was at its height. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the rest of that team, Demolition, the Bolsheviks, uh, like you said, the Brainbusters, Arn and Tully, Los Con- Conquistadores, and the Fabulous Rougeotes.
0: Yeah, interesting thing with the Rougeotes, if you remember. This was the show, and if you've read Um who, Whose book told went into this story? Was it Dynamite's
1: book? Yeah, with the punch.
0: Yes. yeah That this was the show where they were real like the agents were really scared that dynamite was going to get his revenge on Jacques Rougeau for getting punched backstage. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it makes a lot of sense that they did what they, because when I watched at the time, I didn't know the backstory. I was like, what the hell? The Rougeau's just turned heel and they just, they went out so quick. (sighs) Like that didn't make a lot of sense. Well, the reason that they go out first, the Rougeau's, I mean, they get, they go out before the fricking, uh, you know the Bolsheviks and like the some of the other real dog teams in this. Mm-hmm. The reason they did that is the agents w- wanted to scurry the Rougeaus out of the building, uh, so Dynamite could not uh kick Jacques Rougeau's ass. <laughs> and they did. The Rougeaus they went. They were they were the first team eliminated. They went in the back and they left the building. And when Dynamite Kid came looking for them, they were nowhere to be found. Yeah. So there's the drama for this match if you want to watch it back on the network. Yeah, that's why if, if you ever wonder, because the Rougeau, I thought the Rougeau's were great heels. Mm-hmm. Like they were, they they just bored me to tears as baby faces. That's another reason this match is, you know, I mean, it could have been even stronger if you had let the Rougeau's do some of their uh, heel stuff. I really liked um, them managed by Jimmy Hart uh, in this time period. I thought they were really cocky and really good.
1: And the let's see the second match of the evening. This is the match um, that we mentioned before with the young Owen Hart as a blue blazer. He's on the team captain by the ultimate warrior who had uh, become a big name in the WWF earlier that year with his win at SummerSlam against the Honky Tonk Man. And uh, he's got blue blazer on his team. He's got Sam Houston, <laughs> Jim Brunzel and a Brutus the Barber beefcake.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we talked about the roster being kind of thin and there were some replacements on this show. So Jim Brunzel, God bless him. You met him, you know, not a great singles worker. And he wasn't even supposed to be on this show. I mean, he's a fine worker. He just, I mean, he was never over as a singles guy. He was a tag team guy always throughout his career. He replaced Don Morocco who was supposed to be on this team. And I think Morocco just probably learned he was going to job here and he just, he just quit. So Morocco was originally supposed to be on this team and Brunzel replaced him.
1: So I mentioned Sam Houston. This is not the Sam Houston of the uh, Texas revolution. This no. is Sam Houston, the brother of Jake, the snake Roberts, half brother, I believe. Yes. Of Jake, the snake Roberts
0: and a terrible wrestler.
1: Yeah. Not, not the best talent here.
0: Yes. Uh, Sam Houston, Danny Davis. That was not one of the better feuds of this era. I think that like opened every house show, I feel like yeah. in nineteen like throughout nineteen eighty-eight.
1: And of course he was on the other side of the ring. The other team, Bad News Brown, Danny Davis, Greg Valentine, Ron Bass, and the Honky Tonk Man, the captain of the team.
0: Well, yeah, it was co-captains they actually went with this year. Um, you know, you had Warrior and Beefcake as the co captains, and mm-hmm. Beefcake and or pardon me, honky and Ron Bass as the oh, yeah, co captains. That's right. You know, be the, the epic beefcake Ron Bass feud of 1988. That was like, you know, other than Blackjack Mulligan, I think was Ron Bass's only feud in WWF. Um, did do the pedigree, though, many years before Triple H did, should be pointed out. Uh, this match is probably worse than anything on the 87 show, I think. Um, in my notes here, I, I wrote, you know, a problem with this was that I don't think anyone wanted to see or Bought Honky Tonk Man as a cha- legit challenger for the Warrior after SummerSlam. Like that squash really worked, but you know I think after that people were like, okay, it's just time for Honky Tonk Man to job, which is what he became. I mean, throughout it, I mean, he just basically throughout the rest of his tenure uh, was a jobber to the stars type guy. He lost a lot after that long Intercontinental title run he got, and you know people just didn't buy him as a contender for the Warrior. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, It was very logical that the Warrior would go over here. They kind of try to keep Honky strong. And I know, you know, he got a match with the Warrior on a Saturday night's main event after this. But it was something that nobody really was. that. I know as a kid, I wasn't that it was kind of like, all right, let's have the Warrior move on to something else. And he did with Rick Rude. But, uh, you know, I just don't think Warrior Honky worked with Honky as the challenger.
1: Do you think – so, you know, in Hollywood or television, people always talk about being typecast and how that uh, prevents people from moving on to bigger and better things because they're always associated with a a former character they portrayed, and people can't think of them as anything but that. Do you think the Honky Tonk Man is, like, the best example of being typecast in pro wrestling? I mean, like, after he had that gimmick, could he have possibly – remade himself and succeeded no. with another look or no
0: people would have just been like, you're the honky talk.
1: Yeah. And that's
0: fine. I mean, like not everyone can be, you know, I mean, it's kind of hard to pull off two successful gimmicks in a career. If you can do that, you're a pretty good. wrestler. I mean, I think, you know, he had the chicken. People forget he was originally brought in to be a baby face and it bombed mm-hmm. like miserably. I mean, that was one of the first times that I can remember a WWE crowd really turning on a baby face. He was, I mean, that lasted for about, oh, I don't know, a month or two, I want to say. In 86, when he was brought in, he was a baby face. And, he, you know, he'd be like, oh, I'm friends with Hulk Hogan. And everyone's like, no, you're not. Like, <laughs> Hogan is not your friend. And, you know, they they did, they made the kudos to them. They made the quick switch to Jimmy Hart. I'll never forget the vote of confidence angle that Honky had when they, which was the such an interesting way to turn a guy heel on television. They just had a, a contest where you could like call in or whatever, or write in or whatever they did. And it was like, Do you like the honky tonk man? was basically it. And it like came back overwhelmingly no. And he was like, Well, okay, you're a heel now.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, he's Why do you think a bomb so bad? And why do you think they thought he was going to get cheered? I mean, I don't know why the hell they thought he would get cheered. I (laughs) I, I don't have
0: the damnedest clue. I looked at that character. I'm like, who the hell would cheer an Elvis impersonator? Exactly. I just thought it was. Vince probably thought it was cool and probably was the only one who thought it was cool. And I'll tell you what, because it was what, you know, it reminds me a little bit. Of Rocky Mayavia when he started you know, the blue chipper, Mm -hmm. how that bombed. And because it, he bombed as a baby face, it enabled him to get over as a heel more than he should have. Probably now the rock, obviously it was, there's a big difference. The rock became a huge star and was able to convert into a baby face and is now, you know, multimillionaire movie star. So there's a little bit of a difference there, but I think like the initial thing that there is some similarities there with a guy you know, just bombing as a babyface, the promotion, realizing that he's bombing, turning him heel and kind of the carryover vitriol really working uh, with him as a heel being as a pushed heel.
1: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So. Elvis Presley is one of the most probably beloved American musicians of all time. Like just like kind of this pop culture phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And to have a guy come in as an impersonator, I, I don't think people really, I know like Elvis impersonators is like a huge thing, but I don't think people really care for Elvis impersonators.
0: No. And, and he, it wasn't like an over the top. If I remember correctly, like his outfit, like he would just wear like these suspenders and kind of bland tights. I, it's, there's not that much of him available doing the babyface stuff. Yeah. The one thing I can point to, if you want to point to how disastrous was babyface, um, I think it's the first episode of Superstars when they flipped over the Cindy's in 86. He does an inset interview during a Paul Orndorff match. Honky Tonk Man does. Like, it's for no reason, really. It was just like a desperate move, I guess, to get people to like him at that point, where he's like, I can't believe what you did to my friend Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff. This was, you know, when Orndorff was setting the world on fire as a heel, op- working with Hogan. Um, I And it's such an awful promo. <laughs> I mean, it is awful. Like, I don't even think he's, like, looking at the camera the right way. It's just so bad. It's, like, cringeworthy. And you, you just think to yourself, my God, what were they thinking? Yeah. One guy that was a good heel in this match was Bad News Brown. Oh, yeah. Who was, you know, um, now I will bitch when they repeat the same shtick the next year. But they do something cool with him where he, uh, you know, he gets hit by, I think it's Valentine. There's a heel miscommunication spot and Valentine hits him. And Bad News just walks out on his team. And it really kind of gets over the, he almost kind of gets a cheer. A little bit from the crowd if you watch it um but they were setting up bad news for you know kind of a short run he had with randy's randy savage they did some world title matches and some smaller markets i know there's that street fight in hamilton that a lot of people have seen uh but uh bad news was getting a push here and um that was a way to protect him and i thought he was kind of a one of the few highlights of this match
1: mm-hmm.
0: Owen Hart a is the blue blazer i really wanted to get behind him but man that never got off the ground
1: no this is yeah. He came into the company for a brief period and then he left. And uh, did he go to Japan after that? I'm trying to remember. Yes, yeah, that's when he started working with uh, Liger and everything. And that's he, right. Yeah,
0: yeah, the, he, yeah. He, he was another guy that was new in this. You know, I think maybe I guess you added that. Yeah, he was he was pretty new before this match. I was pretty. Si- I, I really like I said as a kid, I really wanted to get behind him. Like every, I was like, oh, this guy's cool, and then like they just. The promotion never got behind him for whatever reason. Yeah. He did not win on TV very
1: much. No. He was frustrated. Yeah. Uh, Semi-main event. All right. Uh, Andre the Giant, Dino Bravo, Harley Race, Mr. Perfect, new to the company at the time, and uh, Rick Rude, Perfect's best friend, taking on Jake Roberts, who's masterful in this match. Uh, Yes. Jim, Jim Duggan, Ken Patera, Scott Casey, and Tito Santana. Oof,
0: that baby face team is not strong. No. Um, again, there was people, there was some last minute switcheroos here on the card that were announced. So Scott Casey was basically a jobber at this point. He replaced B. Brian Blair, who had already replaced Junkyard Dog. Like, JYD was originally set to be on this team, but JYD quit or whatever. And then they were like, all right, B. Brian Blair, you know, we're, we're putting Brunzel in the spot on the other match. How about you? And. B. Brian Blair is like, screw this. I don't want to be a singles guy. Because I think the plan was to just split up the Killer bees and have them be Jobber of the Stars types. Mm-hmm. Um, so Blair walks out and so good old Scott Casey gets his one and only WWE pay per view appearance here.
1: And looking at your notes for the show here, Kyle, uh, you got something to say about Ken Patera in this match. Yes. <laughs> yes. Is there anything shittier
0: than babyface Ken Patera in 1988? <laughs> I mean, I suppose like Rudy Giuliani speaking in the year 2016 is worse, but oh, in yeah. terms of wrestling, babyface Ken, baby Ken Patera, I talked about this a little bit in the 87 version. That was one of the most awful misfires of this era by the company. Like, if you, again, maybe you're young, I don't know if you remember it. When like he first came back, they went all out for that. In like, it was like, that was like the big post mania three storyline on TV was Ken Patera's coming back. And they did the whole thing with him getting released from jail. They released a Coliseum home video called the Ken Patera story, (laughs) which is like the worst Coliseum home video ever released. I've watched it before. It's I would not watch it sober. And if you don't, you'll laugh really hard. It's like Gene Okerlund plays it. Like he's doing like he's on 60 minutes, which is
1: great.
0: But and it's so funny, so you know this, I mean, most people listening to this, I'm sure know this story, Patera went to jail because he, he was basically res, refused service at McDonald's late night, I think, with Mr. Saito, uh, Saito and they threw a boulder through the window. <laughs> and he went to jail. And the way they played it up on TV was, they didn't, like, really, they, they actually acknowledged what happened, I think, kind of, but the way they turned it, this was so great. Was that like it was Bobby Heenan's nefarious managing that led him to do it? And he was Patera was mad that Heenan never visited him in jail, and he was coming back, and he'd seen the error of his past ways. And I guess that sounds okay on paper, because Ken Patera was a big star before he went away. Yeah, uh, Intercontinental Champion. But God, did he deteriorate? He sucked in the ring. Something fierce. <laughs> I mean, I defy you. I defy anyone listening to the show right now. Put it on my Twitter page at TRP Kyle. A good Ken Patera match from 1987 or 1988. There's no way that you can find one. They are all awful. He's so slow and like, it's painful.
1: Yeah, I, I can't remember a Ken Patera match in general that I enjoyed too much, to be honest I mean, with you. It was
0: so, like, out of shape. It was just, oh, it was just painful. You know, his, his his body had kind of atrophied. I'll tell you one guy's body who had not atrophied was Scott Casey. He definitely <laughs> made the money. I don't know if he was hanging out with Dr. George Zahorian right before this pay-per-view. Oh, God. <laughs> baby, baby, did he make sure he was looking good for that one and only pay-per-view appearance? He was <laughs> juiced to the gills, allegedly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. This is Andre too. Kind of at the end of his run, he's uh, he's hurting at this point, which is kind of yeah, sad Want to hear something?
0: Yeah, want to see some, Hear something horrible? Go who ahead. is the only living member of this heel team? Uh, yeah, Harley Race. Yeah, who would God? And Harley Race was the oldest guy on the team at the well. No, Andre was probably older at the time, but who would have guessed that? Har, if you like in 1988, if you're watching this live, like, all right. In 2016, who will still be alive? Who would guess it would be Harley Race?
1: Yeah.
0: That's really sad. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the dang, I have to tap the answer on this one. But the the Dino Bravo murder has always intrigued me. Yeah,
1: it's pretty strange. Mob, is, mob like, connections, mean, possibly sitting in his living room when it happened.
0: Yeah, they just frickin' the Canadian mob because he was bootlegging cigarettes like frickin lit him up game yeah. style i mean it's just like
1: crazy yeah harley race yeah he he also comes here to the hall of fame in the town where i am located every year and super nice guy he's not uh not very mobile at this point no you can tell his back really took a, a pounding in the ring but uh yeah that is kind of a grim note there harley race the only member of that heel team still living
0: And this was during that weird period where he was kind of just finishing up with the company. He was no longer the King.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, He was just Harley race. Yeah. Uh, You know, he had done the injury angle with Hogan and I think this was like his first time coming back. He was still managed by Bobby Heenan, but he got phased out pretty quickly after this. God, when Um, I was a
1: kid, I I didn't know much about Harley race and all all I knew of him was this brief WWF run that he had, which never showcased what Harley race was truly about. I actually have an
0: interesting question for you about that. So everyone, like, not everyone, but the narrative, the, the, the prevailing narrative on Harley Race's WWE run was like, oh, it was this embarrassing thing they did for him. They wanted to, like, crap on a former NWA world champion. Was that really the case? I mean, like, the King thing was always kind of like, whatever, I guess. But he was pushed.
1: Yeah, they I don't think it ass- was intentionally sabotaged. I actually think they thought what they were doing was going to work. I don't think they sabotaged his career, if that's what you're asking.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, because, I mean, like, he got matches with Hogan. Yeah. Like, in the fall of 87, or uh, the, the summer of 87. Those are good Texas death matches, too, by the way, if anyone wants to watch them. Uh, I, yeah, I think that, like, it was—I don't think it was as horrible as people make it out to be. I think his ring work deteriorated a lot throughout the run, but— um. I don't think it was like this punishment. It wasn't like Dusty Rhodes and the polka dots.
1: Oh, no, that's far worse.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, I always wanted to think that because like people are like, oh, man, they really just want, were out to embarrass Harley Race. It's like, man, I, that King gimmick was kind of pushed.
1: Yeah. Initially. I, yeah, I don't I don't see it as intentional sabotage or getting back at the uh, the former NWA guy or anything like that. I just think it was a bad idea the way they booked him. But. Um,
0: yeah, I, I think this match is. Pretty good. Jake Roberts is one hell of a face in peril. So predictably, the babyface team, um, you know, is, is on the short end of the stick, and it winds up actually being four on one here with Jake going against Andre, Rude, uh, Perfect, and Bravo. You know, Harley Race is the only guy that gets eliminated, mm-hmm. and like it's pretty cool because you can contrast it to the year prior when Honky just ran away, and I guess it's an easy spot for a babyface to get over when he's when they do that i mean but um jake really got the crowd behind him in the four on one spot if you want to watch it and it speaks to jake as a performer i think that he kept the crowd going in this and you know ultimately he comes up short he does pin rude with the ddt and andre does the there's this is the match with that famous chokeout spot where andre just steps in and just starts choking the hell out of jake roberts he gets disqualified and I can't remember who it is, if it's perfect or Bravo, just like kind of walks in and just pins him real easy, which is like a great, great heel move. Mm -hmm. Perfect and Bravo are your survivors. But this is one where um, it was pretty obvious the heel team should go over. It was a lot stronger team.
1: Yeah. All right. Main event. Um, So throughout late 88 going into 89, Bossman and Hogan was kind of the, uh, the direction they were going.
0: Yeah, and th- and that was a big drawing feud for Hogan. I mean, that's funny. Like, I, there's a lot. It's kind of become a recent thing to talk about mm-hmm. how well that feud drew. Like, I, there's a lot of like, um, people who've had a lot of positive things to say about that. I mean, Bossman's probably one of Hogan's top five drawing opponents.
1: They had a cage saluted. match on Saturday Night's Main Event that I remember doing a a big number. It's kind of like the culmination. Yeah,
0: they did that. And they they had done they did it around the house show circuit too beforehand.
1: Yeah, um,
0: and. They always drew well was Hogan. I think like the only guys that Hogan definitively drew better with were Andre uh, Savage and Orndorff, mm-hmm. you know, and after that, it's kind of like Bossman and Kamala are like battling for four or five. Yeah. Well, they got the one, the one warrior match. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, pre um, pre warrior. I should, I should have said, yeah. As yeah. far as eighties, eighties uh, opponents go.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this was the first encounter that uh, Hogan and the boss man had since they did that uh, big angle on the Brother Love Show. What are your memories of that?
0: Um, It was, you know, it had been Hogan getting carted off had been done before. Uh, I'm trying to think. By 88, it hadn't been done a ton, though. Like, they did it with Bundy to set up the WrestleMania 2 match. Was this like, the second time only I'm trying to think of another time where they did like a massive beat down where they had to like basically carry Hogan off. This mm-hmm. may have been the second one.
1: Yeah. I, I can't think of another one.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, he didn't do anything like that in 87. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was good. It got, got over boss man, you know, really strong. Boss man was good. Athletic big man They brought in from, you know, they, they nabbed him from Crockett. Uh, he was big Bubba Rogers there and, uh, they, probably didn't know what they had in him and he really worked as a Hogan opponent it was, it was a very yeah. successful that was kind of the big draw of this show was you know it, it wasn't as big as Hogan and Andre the previous year but this was like the first time Hogan would get a chance to get his hands on the boss man after that angle yeah and, and I, th- I think it was the, the crowd was hot for it mm-hmm
1: Crowd was also hot, wondering what was going to happen with the Mega Powers. So they were starting to tease uh, or uh-huh, continuing yes. to tease the tension between Hogan and Savage, which would eventually lead into the WrestleMania match four months later. Um, we should just call out who was on these on these teams. So you had yep. the Mega Powers, you had Coco Beware in the main <laughs> event here. <laughs> We've talked about him on the show before. Yeah. Uh, Hillbilly Jim and Hercules. Oh so you can see where this roster is struggling. That's that's the face team. Hogan
0: always loved having, I think, weak baby faces on his team to make him look all the more better. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him.
1: Yeah. And the heel team was Akeem, Haku, DiBiase, Bossman, and, yes, the Red Rooster.
0: Yeah, so it's definitely main event time when you got Coco Beware, Hillbilly Jim, and the Red Rooster involved. <laughs> If it wasn't for Ken Patera, Hillbilly Jim, easily the least talented person on the show. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Hillbilly Jim, also my mother's favorite pro wrestler during this time period. <laughs> That's frustrating. My mom was not a wrestling fan. Yeah, yeah She, I, I she feel... hates wrestling, but she always, like, laughed when he would come out on the screen.
0: Yeah, You know, God bless him. He always stayed in good shape. Oh, yeah. Remember, he was like the one guy God. You would have thought, like, he would have been ready for a bodybuilding. God, did that WrestleMania 17 Battle Royal? Uh-huh. He had every other guy you know, coming out five feet behind their gut. And Hillbilly Jim, man, he was ready to go.
1: <laughs> so you wrote in our show notes here, Hercules was kind of like the unofficial third oh, megapower. Yeah, remember.
0: people forget about this atrocity. Hercules, yeah, the unofficial third Megapower Hercules. That was something that's not fondly remembered for a reason. Hercules was, he didn't really work as a baby face. yeah. He was feuding with
1: DiBiase at
0: the time. Yeah, this was – the crowd was kind of hot for that segment. I was shocked when I – the last time I rewatched this, like, when they they did the old segment when they had, like, DiBiase's back was turned and Hercules tags in and, like, DiBiase turns around and sees Hercules. The crowd was, like, shockingly hot for that. Yeah. But, you know, they had just done the the infamous slave angle, something that I don't think we will be seeing on WWE TV anytime soon, where DiBiase wanted to buy Hercules as his slave.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. Simpler times. (laughs) Yes. Hey, look at my African American f- uh fan yeah. over there, or whatever yeah. Donald Trump would say. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. By the way, this was
0: during the time period between the two uh WrestleMania's that were hosted by Trump Plaza. Yeah, I don't know, maybe Do- maybe Donald gave Vince this idea. I don't know. <laughs> There's another scandal just waiting to be discovered. Yeah. Yeah, Hercules trying to be bought as a slave. I always loved how Jesse Ventura like would put it over like he, Hercules should have taken the money. <laughs> like that was un- like, you just watch it now and you're like, I can't believe these people are saying this on television. How did this make it on national television? Oh, well, Jesse said worse. Yeah. Jesse used to say worse. Yeah, do you remember the the time when Piper was whipping Mr. T out of Saturday's main event and Ventura goes, look, McMahon, it's Roots too." <laughs> that was a good That's, line. That is unbelievable. Or like the stuff Heenan would say about Virgil when Virgil was a baby face. Yeah. Like, I, like what was it? Like, something like he was wrestling for the million-dollar title, and, Virg- and he's like, oh, I hope Virgil didn't do something stupid, like by, put a down payment on a boombox.
1: Oh, my God. This is, this, this is so, like, yeah, 80s. You could never get away with this today. No. Not even close. No.
0: Yeah, Hercules, yes, from slave, potential slave to unofficial third mega power, yeah. He was the, he was the only other push baby face. I mean, Coco beware and hillbilly Jim. I don't know what business they had here on this side. I mean, they, they weren't even being pushed or really regularly featured on television. I don't think during that point, Coco was already in JTTS
1: mode yeah. and hillbilly. I don't remember anything from him in 88. This is uh we talk a lot about like roster depth and we talked about it with the recent WWE brand split. Um, this is, this is lack of depth on a whole different level. When, yep. when you're having to fill out a show with all these elimination matches, you can see when you get to the main event, uh, yeah, not a lot to go around here. It's pretty crazy. WWE basically had you know the
0: guys who were the co-captains, the six co-captains, Hogan, Savage, Warrior, Beefcake, um, Jake, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Those are your six top babyfaces at the time, and there was like nothing else. Now, I'll say that those six guys are much, much more over than the top six baby faces in 2016 WWE. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But, God, like, the drop-off is, like, so severe after that. I mean, you're talking Hercules, for God's sake.
1: (laughs) Shockingly, Meltzer actually gave this match three stars. This is... Okay, so the match itself, again,
0: like, the main event of 87 absolutely works, and it works on multiple levels. Yeah. It works in the sense you have the Hogan boss man stuff. Now there's some weak DQs in here for those who have not seen the match. Um, You know, there's this thing where Hogan gets handcuffed to the ropes. And I think it's after the twin towers, just double team them. And they just like DQ both twin towers, which is so, so weak. That's something that I'm going to harp on in these future survivor series, just these weak eliminations they do, but they're done to protect the guys. I guess in some regard, so I can understand it here. And Hogan spends the match handcuffed while Savage is doing the face in peril segment. Um, there's a bit where Elizabeth gets the key back from Slick somehow. I remember like Slick's like dangling it in front of her face, and then like somehow like you know like a stupid heel he like slips or something like that, and like she gets the key and unlocks Hogan and they win the match. They pin Haku last for Haku did the honors of doing the job at the end but um, they really ramped up the tension between the mega powers here which was the key more even than the Hogan boss man stuff mm-hmm. and, um, that was good I mean I think personally this is the greatest storyline WWE has ever done in its history
1: mega so, powers
0: yes yeah, yeah. I, I think it just again it just shows the benefit of long term planning it's always been said that when these two were together in the ring at the end of WrestleMania four, Vince and Pat Patterson already knew that that was going to be the main event for WrestleMania five. They were going to do the big split and they're going to headline against each other the next year in Atlantic city. And, and because they had that direction already mapped out, they were a lot able to do a lot of subtle stuff down the road and um, it worked big time. Oh, I mean, yeah, you could really. rip it. SummerSlam, I think they did a little bit of it where Hogan put Liz on his shoulder. Yeah. And yeah, like, Savage yeah. looked at him. Right. Mm-hmm. But here I remember the looking was more obvious from Savage's side. And this obviously, much like the previous year, builds to uh, a special on NBC on Friday night. Uh, didn't do quite the amount of viewers that Hogan Andre did, but it did quite a few uh, when it's Hogan and Savage against the team and the boss. Man, and that's obviously the major split. Anyone who watched WWE in the Sierra remembers that it's. Uh, one of the great angles of all time with one of the great pro heel promos by Randy Savage of all time when he, you know, uses the, the jealous eyes promo. Um, yeah, I just, I, 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 believe. I, yeah. I just love the, the, this storyline.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, overall it's, it's a weaker show than the year before. We're starting to see some depth issues, um, but there's stuff on it that works. Uh, we should mention that since we talked about the tension with, uh, what becomes wcw they did in fact move starcade to a month later actually happened uh i believe yeah the day after christmas december 26th the next month but there was um a couple weeks later in december of 88 so following survivor series there was a night on december 7th where the two companies did go head to head once again i believe or were they at different uh times was was clash in the afternoon and main event at night I cannot remember, but Clash of the Champions 4 and Saturday Night's main event happened on the same day, December 7th of yeah, well, did. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. I have to check in on that, but well, I think, I think the-, the Clash may have been during the afternoon. Possibly. Well-
0: if, even if it aired in evening, it was probably done. Because remember, Saturday Night's Main Event did not begin until 11.30 local. It was, it was in Saturday Night Live's time slot, so there's no way the Clash started that
1: late. Okay, that's
0: right. That's interesting. I didn't know that, that there was a Saturday Night's Main Event that night a Clash 4. Yep. Wow. That Clash wasn't that good. I will say, though, that, that Starcade is a good show. It's a much better show than Starcade 87. Although, the writing was already on the wall when you look at the crowd and they're running the Norfolk Scope. It's, mm, you, Things were not good uh, in Turner land at that point, even though, you know, Ric Flair and Lex Luger had a hell of a match that night, much better than anything on the Survivor Series show.
1: Probably, would you say the best match of Luger's career? It's up there. I would say it's either that one
0: or the Wrestle War 91, which also has a terrible ending. It's the one where you sit where like, Sting limps to the ring to cheer him on, and the Andersons start like shoving him and Luger leaves the ring to go save sting and he gets counted out. Oh, it yeah. was such a cheap finish. Yeah. Uh, although Jim Ross's commentary kind of saves it. We like, get in the ring Lex. Uh, <laughs> it's either that, the one of those, or, um, maybe the match was steamboat, a great American bash 89. I don't know. There, some, somebody says that there's like a great match they had that was untelevised right before that bash Luger and steamboat. I've never seen it ever i've never been able to find it it was like in the observer year and uh a decade end yearbook in 89 somebody's like oh my god this match that steamboat and luger had uh i can't even remember what the location was right before great american bash 89 was the bet was unbelievable um but yeah it, it's on the short list for luger's best matches ever no doubt okay
1: least solo matches Alright, this brings us to Survivor Series 89, the last show we're going to cover here on this edition, and uh, Kyle, you wrote in our uh, show notes here, this is where the downfall begins. Yeah,
0: so by 1989, let's put things into context here, WWE now has four pay-per-views on its calendar. The Rumble, the first one on pay-per-view that happened this year, um, SummerSlam, obviously then in the second edition, and... I think you can make an argument that almost instantly, I wonder if you would agree or disagree, I have, I have a feeling which way you're leaning, Survivor Series kind of becomes the fourth of the big four, almost instantaneously.
1: Yeah. Well, it's clearly, I mean, the Rumble would always um, set up something big, SummerSlam was kind of like the WrestleMania of the summertime, but this show was, it never, like we had mentioned earlier, it never culminated in any feuds. It just served as kind of like a bridge between storylines usually. Yeah, um, and that was an issue. Um, even with
0: the first, well, in the 88 one, the Hogan Bossman thing was fresh. But and in 87, it was kind of to refurbish the Hogan Andre thing. And, but that was a big feud that, you know, had a hook there with the guy, you know, having not appeared in the ring for eight months or whatever. This show just started a trend of mm, not a lot of hook. For it, yeah. like I'm not sure why you would buy the show. I kind of remember at the time they didn't even push it that hard. It felt on TV. I remember yeah. I got like a WWE magazine at the time or WWF magazine at the time. Pardon me. And I saw the card, maybe before I'd seen it announced on TV, and I was like, "Ooh, this doesn't seem very good mm-hmm. or interesting."
1: Yeah, I, you know, my my television memory at the time is pretty thin, but I do remember, you know, seeing it in the video store and just kind of skipping over it, and not really having much interest in. You know, I gotta say, also the just from a video store perspective, I remember like the Survivor Series Coliseum videos. The covers never really did much for me. There wasn't there were they weren't very creative. It was just like a group shot of the teams. It wasn't like the uh like the Royal Rumble covers where they'd have like the sweet. Uh, you know artist depictions of all the wrestlers walking through the dark alley or whatever wrestlemania always had a cool cover survivor series i don't know what you thought but i always thought it just looked like they didn't even spend much time on on the promotion of the video cassette
0: it's very interesting that you bring up the concept of the video store and yes kids there used to be a place where you would rent vhs tapes (laughs) uh this show and i don't know if i Told you this off air after the last time we recorded Top Rope Nation or if it was on air. I have a very sketchy memory, but <laughs> for various reasons. But um, <laughs> this show is actually the only show um from the this entire WWE or like my youth that I did not rent from the video store. And oh, the yeah. Being, this. Yeah, yeah. It was just weird. Like my local video store just didn't have it. And so I didn't watch this show probably until the late 90s. And it was always, for me, it was kind of like, ooh, Survivor Series 89. I just like bought it from somebody for like five bucks off eBay. And I was like, yeah, Survivor Series 89, kind of like the lost tape. I'm finally going to get to see it. And I watched it, and I was like, holy crap, nothing happened at this show. (laughs) it, It is, I don't think it's like an awful show. but. Even by like modern standards where a lot of these, you know, current, you know, the pay-per-views in the last current years, like the brand split ones have just started or whatever, where not a lot happens. Mm -hmm. This is pretty insignificant even by modern standards. Yeah. Certainly of standards of the era. I mean, it just felt like nothing that happened here was being pushed hard on TV, at least at the top, which is a problem. You need a big, you know, there was nothing along the lines of Hogan Andre or Hogan Boss man on this. I mean he had a Hogan Zeus, but they'd already kind of killed that off, blown that off at SummerSlam. And it, yeah. they oddly tried restarting it here and it just didn't work.
1: No. Yeah, the uh that's really the only draw is Zeus. And like you said, they'd already Harry brought it out. The movie at this point had been I think the movie was was released in June, so we're now by November. It's kind of lost steam. Uh of course, the movie being No Holds Barred, by the way, starring yeah. the Hogan Zeus thing. Well, Hogan's best movie. <laughs> it doesn't take a whole lot to take that title. But I would agree, probably his best movie. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. I was just going to say, with, um, you know, going back to, I thought the booking of 1989 WWF, and I don't know how much you remember, or, I mean, how much you've gone back and thought about it. It's kind of a weird thing to think about, 1989 WWF, but... I sadly have done plenty of thinking about it through the years. And I really think they screwed up by changing the title at WrestleMania. It was way too soon to take it off Savage, who's probably as hot a heel champion as that company's ever had. Yeah. It's and a that, predictable finish. Yeah, Well, yeah, I mean, because back then it was always Hogan with the leg drop. Yeah. But I thought they could have really stretched that out and brought it to SummerSlam. To be honest, and had Hogan beat him at SummerSlam for the title, maybe you do a rematch in a cage. You go to—I know—in that era, going to a non-finish in the Mania main event was would have been, you know, pretty controversial. But man, I think they could have kept doing big business throughout the summer. Um, having Hogan still chasing Savage up to SummerSlam, and then you could have introduced Zeus into the equation and if zeus would have made his debut here at this show as opposed to SummerSlam, and by the way as much as people want to make fun of zeus that drew really well when him and savage teamed up against hogan and beefcake that i mean it did really good um the first time around at the box office but once hogan pinned him at that show like there was no reason to care so this was kind of just like a rehash but if this would have been like the debut of zeus in the ring you would have had something
1: yeah, yeah, they could have stretched, especially as good as they. We talked earlier how well they uh, they built up the the Hogan Savage stuff. Yeah, they should have drawn it out a little more. They kind of yeah, they gave away the end result. Hogan getting the belt back a little early, I think.
0: Yeah, too. and I, I just think that you know Savage chasing over the summer just didn't it didn't work as well. I mean, it still worked okay, obviously. Like I said, SummerSlam did well, but eh, could have done better in my yeah, the opinion. Mon-
1: the money would be in Hogan chasing.
0: Yes. Yes, yeah. and like I said, if you build a cage match at that SummerSlam, woof! I, I think that does even bigger business than the show did.
1: Yeah. So uh, Survivor Series '89 is a pretty awkward show in a lot of ways. There's some unintentionally hilarious moments um, at the beginning of the show, and maybe I'll I'll put in some of the audio here later. Uh, you've got many of the wrestlers saying what they're thankful for. You've got Dusty Rhodes; he's thankful for polka dots. You got Ted DiBiase, thankful for money. You know, the predictable answers. And uh, then they cut to the arena. And you got Jesse Ventura dressed as a pilgrim. This is just amazing 80s WWF stuff right (laughs) here. And uh, so we're talking about the Hogan-Zeus feud. So um, let's just go right into that match if you want to. The the match happened in the middle of the show. Which is significant.
0: I want to I yeah. want to uh, come back to that at the end
1: because it's fairly significant
0: that this went on and that Hogan went on in the middle and then Warrior goes on at the end
1: and this was right I believe the show had an intermission if I'm not mistaken I think this was right before the intermission yes and uh so Hogan teams up with Axe from Demolition and Smash both both members of Def, Demolition um Jake Roberts who had One of the most awkward Jake Roberts entrances I've ever seen. So, Jake Roberts comes down to the ring and he immediately, during his entrance, he gets out the python, Damien, and to get the heels to scatter out of the ring. And it looks like the snake is either dead (laughs) or just completely passed out because they always medicated these things so they wouldn't go crazy. And so, Jake walks around the ring just smacking the snake in the head like hard. And it, it gets awkward because he does it over and over and over. And he's just like, looking down. And he's like, why aren't you moving? And he's smacking it and smacking it and moves around the ring. And finally, the snake like starts twitching a little bit, like moving slightly. But the thing looks like it's dead and he's carrying around just like this massive python that's not moving at all.
0: It's uh, like the dogs at uh, Kennel from Hell.
1: <laughs> Remember that
0: with those dogs? they like <laughs> supposed to be biting boss, man. And they just were like sniffing each other. yeah. yeah it was it
1: was a little strange
0: yeah i i had forgotten about that that's that's very amusing i I feel like jake a lot of times had to do that like smack around the snake and be like come on man (laughs) except when of course they had him bite Randy savage and then he couldn't get him off you know yeah
1: (laughs) drawn blood yeah randy savage what a freaking man that guy is for doing that (sighs) my god king cobra yeah yeah so that the snake itself... better been devenomized by the lab. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I you know I'm not a zoologist, but I don't think you can send a snake to be devenomized by a lab. You
1: wouldn't, you wouldn't think, think so. so. Yeah,
0: that sounds sketchy. I don't know. I, I didn't take zoology in college. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: <laughs> if you um, have the network, though, just you this the show has cues throughout it where you can just fast forward. Just. Just uh, start up Survivor Series '89. Go to the, this match; it's like the third match on the card, and just just watch the Jake Roberts entrance. You'll see what I'm talking about.
0: And then don't watch the rest of this match because this is awful. It's horrible. It's oh I, god. Yeah, this might be the worst. Not might be is. This is the worst match on the first three Survivor Series. Um, <laughs> before I want to, I go through the individual match. We should talk about some macro level stuff that was going on with this show, uh, because. People who may not be familiar and are just listening to us run down the cards may have noticed they are now um, having the tag teams and the singles attractions team together. There's no separate tag match on this card. The tag division had gotten a little smaller by 18, 1989, so they'd woven those together. Now, you have, I mean, you have Demolition teaming up with Hulk Hogan, something which as a kid I was like a big fan of. And then like Demolition really gets pretty shoddy treatment in this match, to be honest. So. Um. That wasn't worth much. And, um, you know, and there's also only four people per team now, and there's an extra match. And I think that really hurts the card. That's something else that I wanted to mention because it means shorter matches and doing like 20 minute elimination matches just isn't good. It's too quick. Um, it lends itself to too many weak eliminations and my God, they do some weak eliminations in this match in particular. I think there was three DQs on the heel side uh, which was DiBiase, Zeus, and the Powers of Pain. That's another thing. They like, kind of just reinvigorated that Powers of Pain demolition feud for no reason. They weren't even feuding on TV at all at this time. So it was kind of weird to see them on opposite sides. And um, the Zeus DQ in particular is just brutal. I mean, that is so weak.
1: Happens like right at the beginning if I'm not yes, mistaken. And it was weird because like I said, they had
0: already had Hogan pin him at SummerSlam, so it's kind of established Hogan at his number, and then they like just it's something they were, they're, they like, doing now with the club, you know, where, like, the club loses the big match for the titles, and then inexplicably they get pushed like they've never gotten a title shot before. Yeah. Afterwards. Like, yeah, Zeus does his silly neck ringing move, like the one move he knew how to do, and he just keeps doing it, and they just disqualify him right off the rip, which is really weak, and then they disqualify the powers of pain for double-teaming. Um, it, It's just really weak, this match it's much worse than anything on the first two shows.
1: Dave Meltzer it, gave it two stars. Wow. So. That's high. I, I was it's higher high than him. High,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, it's high in more ways than one, but uh, yeah, I, I'd been a little higher than him on the, on the first two, but no, there's there, this is not a two star match. This is a, this match to me really fails in multiple ways. It's just, I mean, you have pitting you know, the d b Ossie. And here's another thing too. Like, you know, you had Hogan and DiBiase as the oppo- as the opposing captains. I know that the programs were Hogan and Zeus and Roberts and DiBiase, but um, I don't know. It was just so weak. And it just seemed like, you know, such an uninteresting thing for Hogan to be involved with compared to the previous years.
1: Yeah. We, we should also mention that this was the show where uh, Survivor Series went to the team names. So yes. They gave, they gave all the teams little gimmick so this was the hulkamaniacs taking on uh the million dollar team um we had names like the king's court earlier in the show the dream team before the actual basketball dream team happened three years later that's right Uh, the enforcers the four by fours which is an awesome name and uh what else do we have the rude brood that's a good one. That one's pretty good. That's probably the best one. Roddy's Rowdies, the Ultimate Warriors. Okay, that's that's pretty lame. And the Heenan family, of course. That's so Explanatory, yes. I got some we got some decent ones, but yeah, the the show from top to bottom was pretty awful. Um if I'm grading this, there's nothing above like three stars, probably, or just no. barely over three stars. No, there there's that. not a three star match on this show. Um and like I said, the
0: the move from five guys per team to four and that now there's five matches instead of four on the show. Some quick math. Hope you can follow along there. Uh, it just really hurt the overall match quality. And it just seemed like the pairings were so random. You know, they they basically what they did is, as we go through the card is they just found ways to, Protect the guys they wanted to protect, which I guess is okay, but you know, it's kind of obvious when you look at every match who's going to survive. It's mm-hmm. something they kind of do today where yeah. there's just no intrigue. It's like, all right, here are the guys right now we want to protect in storylines. Make sure they're all in different matches and they're the ones who are going to win. It was just, there just wasn't a lot of intrigue. Um, the feuds that were being pushed aren't particularly memorable ones up and down the card. And they weren't ones that had a lot of intrigue coming out of this show for sure.
1: Yeah, and when you contrast this show, so we we've been talking about what uh, was happening with NWA, WCW here pretty soon and WWF and the the rivalry for the time slots here in November and the moving of Starcade. Um NWA had Clash of the Champions 9 uh just over a week before the Survivor Series show. And that show was oh, headlined a- by Rick Flair and Terry Funk in an all-time classic. Yes, one of the best Clash matches of all time. That's one of the best clashes of all time. I think top to bottom. Yeah. So if you have just watched that show a week earlier, and then you watch the Survivor Series show, it's uh, it's quite the reverse for WWF. It's it's not a great show on their end. Although
0: we, as much as we're down on this show, this show did still do okay business if. I would have to double check this. I'm pretty sure, though, the pay-per-view universe increased fairly dramatically in 1989 from 1988. Like, I think just a lot more people had the capability to order. Because um, WrestleMania V obviously uh, did massive business, and and it it's the record of for pay-per-view buys it set stood until WrestleMania 14. Uh, And then SummerSlam did well. And, you know, this, I think, did actually more buys than 87, but it was in a much bigger pay-per-view universe. So uh, Mm -hmm. the buy rate was probably smaller while the number of buys was higher. Yeah, And, you you know, the NWA, for as good as it was in 1989, we need to point out, um, you know, its business was, it it didn't really, aside from a brief uh, kind of uh, uh, resurgence when Flair and Funk started. It, it's business never really did turn around and it completely fell off a cliff in
1: 1990
0: as the yeah. WWS.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. So the rest of this card, uh, if there's anything we really want to delve into, but there's not a lot to talk about uh, that opening match, the dream team was beefcake, dusty, the red rooster still around and Tito Santana taking on the enforcers of bad news. Brown, Rick Martel boss, man, and the honky tonk man. Not a very good match.
0: No. And it, it was weird because Beefcake was like the regular tag team partner of Hogan in this time period. And here he is like on a totally different team. Yeah. And again, that speaks to the fact that they wanted to protect certain guys and Dusty and Beefcake go over here. Um, it should be pointed out that at some point during the show, I'm positive. They, yeah, they do. Um, they hype a no holds barred the match the movie. Tag that pay per view, which took place where they actually you could order the paper the movie on pay-per-view, and then you got this tag team match in a cage, Hogan and Beefcake against Savage and Zeus, a rematch from SummerSlam. So I guess that's why they kind of wanted to kickstart Zeus in that other match. But yeah, Beefcake and Dusty go over here, and um eh. bad news was a sub for Akeem, if I remember, and they repeat the same thing he did in eighty-eight where there's a heel miscommunication spot. And he just walks away. So they were getting real lazy. Although you can't really blame the boss or uh bad news for walking away uh from a team that has a racist prison guard and a guy named Honky.
1: <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but that is a an thing. And he was subbing point. for
0: a team. so he was probably already offended. So,
1: you know. <laughs> um all right, so then the the match with the best team names, King's Court taking on the, the four by fours. So this was also interesting to me. So you had pointed out um, the fact that they were starting to split up the tag teams to, to fill out the car. They didn't have the tag team Survivor Series match. Um, so here we are in 1989. You have Bret Hart um, in a match without Jim Neidhart. He's on the, uh, the team of the four by force. It's Bret, yes. Hercules, Jim Duggan, of course, the namesake of the team, and Ronnie Garvin uh, against the Kings Court of Dino Bravo Earthquake greg valentine and the macho man also not a very good match no this is a forgotten
0: feud uh another interesting thing they did in 89 was they started changing the crown uh we talked about you know harley race and uh that gimmick um what it did for him early on earlier and earlier in this episode uh you know haku got it when race retired basically and then they Had him start defending it, and Duggan won it, and then he transitioned it to Savage. So this Savage-Duggan thing was kind of forgotten. It was a feud that the babyface wasn't going to get his heat back, so I don't think a lot of people really cared. Um, The heel team was much stronger. Uh, The highlights of this match for me were the babyface team all coming down carrying two-by-fours, which was moderately amusing. Uh, um, And the Savage-Heart segment, you know, you talked about Brett was... You know, this they, they were teasing him as a heel. This was the second time they'd done this. Um, and ultimately, they just wound up going back to the hard foundation. And they get the belts the next year. But uh, the segment with Brett and Savage, go back and watch
1: this. This is not me being biased. That gets good heat. That's the highlight of this match, not surprisingly. Isn't It's been a few years since I've read his book. I think it came out in like 07. But doesn't Brett talk in his book about being was this the time period where they were thinking about pushing him as a single and then they just went back to the heart foundation because I, yeah. I, I feel like he talked in there about like a possible feud with savage and that they were telling him he was going singles and then they, then they just put him back in the tag team
0: yeah they'd done it if you remember the previous year too because that heart foundation babyface turn was really weird in 1988 it was just kind of because bad news had turned on brett in the battle royal at WrestleMania. Yeah. And then they started working the house shows against each other. But Brett was just kind of like a de facto babyface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they just sort of dropped that feud, and the hearts became babyfaces. They fired Jimmy Hart. And this was different, though. Like, if I remember, Brett had been working with Mr. Perfect a lot on the house shows in 1989. So th- this was a longer stab at it. And yeah, they just kind of after this show abruptly went back to the Heart Foundation. Yeah. They teamed up at SummerSlam, though, the Hearts against the Brain Busters. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of weird. Yeah. That whole thing. But yeah, that, that's definitely the, the best part of this match is, the, is when Bret and Savage face off. It's kind of fun. It, it, it's shocking, actually, how over Brett was um, in this, despite no real TV push.
1: Yeah, he's just kind of out there on his own, no reason to, yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, he had no feud, he had no, I mean, you know, it, it, it's something you have to kind of, jo- like, I don't really remember him wrestling a lot by himself on TV. No. Or any direction for that. Yeah. Not so, like Canadian in this match, though. We should point out the Canadian earthquake, as he was known. Here, yes. Before he, <laughs> before he was just earthquake. He, they had just run that angle, him and Bravo, where, um, you know, this is always like one of those angles where people, um, you know, I know kids at school talked about it all the time where, like, they did where um, John Tensa came out of the crowd during the Warrior Bravo push up contest and they just sat on the Warrior. And it turned out he was, you know, aligned with Bravo and Jimmy Hart. Yeah. Um, it was kind of weird they ran that angle and then Warrior and Bravo weren't even involved in the same match. That kind of, again, speaks to the haphazard and kind of lame nature uh, of or lame way this card was put together.
1: <laughs> so it was right after this match that you had the Hogan match. And then we had our intermission and there was two matches left. We and... have intermission. We should talk, talk yeah. about
0: that real quick. Go ahead. There was actually like a 10 minute break in these pay-per-views where nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And like, you, you just like, if you ordered on pay-per-view, they're like, yep, we will restart
1: the show in 10 minutes. They had like a countdown screen. Yeah. Right. We, yeah. You know, we're going to let everyone in the live audience go pee now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I mean they still do it uh, at the house shows to sell merch, but uh um, Yeah. yeah the it same was, kind of thing. Yeah, they, they they just don't do it now. And uh also by the way, the
0: Canadian Earthquake subbed for Barry Windham, the widow maker Barry Wyndham in that last bit he had walked out on the company um, I believe, because his father and brother were uh busy making a lot of fake one hundred dollar bills at the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh yeah, it's, it's an interesting time in wrestling history. <laughs> Barry, <laughs> wait, that least. was always kind of like a missed thing, you know what I'm saying? Like I was, like
0: I was kind of like uh, Barry, I thought could have done something. It's too bad that you know his family got in all that legal trouble, um, and he had to kind of just walk away for a little bit because um, you know he never even got going really. No, w-
1: no. So. Yeah, the intermission, which I always remember on the renting the Coliseum videos, and they would actually show the countdown screen, and then it would just kind of fade back to like yeah. the countdown from five seconds.
0: And you actually had to fast forward through the 10 minutes if you had the <laughs> yeah.
1: cake. Yeah. And then that took us to the fourth match, which again, I think this is the best name of the teams the Rude Brood. Uh, Jacques Rougeau, Mr. Perfect, Raymond Rougeau, and Rick Rude against Roddy's Rowdy's. The Bushwhackers, Jimmy Snuka, and Roddy Piper. Probably, I would say oh, this m- may be the best match on the card of a of a poor card overall.
0: Yeah, I maybe just for the perfect Snuka finishing segment, because anything with the Bushwhackers and it's bad. <laughs> like Bill Yeah, yeah. Like, is there <laughs> like? Is there any act from this era, and I don't maybe maybe nothing makes you react this way, so I don't know. But like, if you're just watching like random old WWE programming from this era, is there any act that just makes you just like I don't know, throw whatever you have next to you in the air more than the frickin bushwhackers?
1: <laughs> like anytime they appear, like I'm watching anything random, and I'm like, oh god damn it, not the bushwhackers. You're like watching it alone, hoping nobody walks in to see yes, you watching yes. this. <laughs> oh no, I'm reacting that way even if I'm by myself. <laughs> I can see you like sitting on your couch and you're like pulling up a blanket over your face, like you don't want yeah. to be seen, even by yourself in the mirror. Yeah, I just I just grab the remote and then I,
0: I, I furthered up <laughs> by a a very bit. Hold on, hold on one second. But well,
1: like we were saying, maybe maybe the best match. All of this or the main event, probably. But there's not a like, neither. Like we said, neither of them are beyond no, three stars. Yeah, but yeah. Although, oh, anyway, yeah,
0: the Bushwhackers that they're, they're just brutal, and then um, yeah. they. Got into lazy booking territory with Piper and Rude, which was one of the bigger push feuds at this time. It started at SummerSlam. Piper had come back to the company, uh, mooned Rick Rude at SummerSlam, costing him the Intercontinental title. Uh, One of the more memorable finishes of the era. And they do a double DQ here, which is kind of lame. I understand why they did it. They were protect The house shows still mattered uh, during this time period. 89 was kind of the last year i think where the house show business was they were happy with it in my opinion and they did have one heck of a house show main event i don't know if you've ever seen it. it's a steel cage match it was on one of the super tapes i want to say in that era piper and rude it's probably piper's best wwf match don't recall it okay it's it's definitely rick rude's best match to that point in his career and it's maybe piper's best wwf match it really is i mean it's it's a really good cage match. It's at MSG in December of 89. So they still wanted to save those two for that, not having anyone beat anyone clean, which, you know, it's much different than they do today. Um, there's pros and cons both ways. And then, uh, perfect beats Snuka, obviously. Um, it, which is the, the way it should have been. And perfect was the guy they wanted to protect here. He was still undefeated. So it makes sense the finish, but so. yeah, the faint praise calling this the best match of the night. <laughs>
1: That brings us to the main event, the Ultimate Warriors. So here's Jim Neidhart, separate from Brett, on the uh, Warriors team, along with the Rockers, Marty and Sean, and the Warrior, taking on the Heenan family, Andre, um, Arn Anderson, uh, Bobby Heenan himself, and Haku. And this match, it's okay.
0: It's well, fine. Yeah. War- All right. Warrior Andre is. Like the worst house show feud of all time.
1: <laughs> yeah, unless well, you see I, Andre like knock out uh, knock out Warrior, like uh, Bobby Heenan's told a story so many times where uh he'd he'd get frustrated by Warrior working so stiff in the ring and eventually he'd just like clock him one time really hard. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, for those unfamiliar,
0: they were having Warrior beat Andre in like 20 seconds, and it was supposed to be like this big jump start to Like Warriors push, which I want to get to in a minute. But it didn't really have a positive effect. Like the fans who had paid because that was the advertised main event were just kind of pissed that the main event was 20 seconds Mm -hmm. in some of these cities. And, you know, uh, God, you think about those two at the time, God, I don't know if you'd want them working longer than 20 seconds, though. I mean, Andre was awful. I mean, Vince McMahon, shame on you for trotting him out to the ring at this point. Yeah. And then Warrior was very very limited although he had just had a very good match with Rick Rude at SummerSlam which was his second best match I think he ever had. Yeah. But um yeah, Warrior and Andre was it was a bad house show feud where they had Captain and in, in here they have Andre go out in like 20 seconds in the match. Yeah. You know, Warrior... they
1: close line him and War- R- Andre gets counted out. Yeah. Warrior could have a great match if he was in there with a good ring general, but uh yeah, you're, you're talking the, the Savage match, obviously, and Rude, mm-hmm. who was very good in the ring in his own right. But, yeah, you're talking about Andre three years from his death who can barely walk around the ring at this time.
0: Yeah. Andre you know, was a different kind of general at this period. Yeah.
1: Probably drunk.
0: Probably. <laughs> uh, speaking of, it's a lot of beers. Yeah. Speaking of alcohol and drugs, we should point out the most interesting part of this match, which is the reason Bobby Heenan is wrestling, which is... Tully Blanchard failed a test for Coke right before the show and they fired him right. and that
1: wound up costing him his NWA gig. Which is why you only have one half of the brain busters in this match. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, they, they were on their way out. I think there was still the Saturday
0: main event where they lost to the rockers. I think had been taped. Well, it obviously had been taped because he was fired here, but um, it had not aired. If I remember correctly i can't remember it was right around that time what the, there's a science main event it's like the rockers work the busters and um i remember they're playing up tension with heenan and the and tully and arn but i think i actually aired after this show but regardless yeah tully doesn't work here because he failed the test for cocaine and um really that's the end of him as a regular performer in the united states which is too bad tully's one of my all-time favorites so um, that kind of sucks.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was that Saturday night's main event was on Halloween night. So about a month earlier. Oh,
0: a month or okay. Yeah. All right. So
1: they they'd already teased it. I I remember that incorrectly. I apologize. R- the Rockers and the Brainbusters, yeah. yeah. Yep. So
0: they always had fun matches throughout the year, those two.
1: Yeah, it's it's too okay. bad. I, I've always felt like uh Arn and Tully's time though in WWF was pretty uh pretty weak compared to what they could have what they could have done.
0: Yeah. I mean, they got the, they were the team who beat demolition. Yeah. After demolition, you know, the record that, you know, by the time people listen to this may, you know, if you've listened, unless you're listening to it within the first month of release, it, that record may no longer be the record demolitions record. New day is probably going to break it, but um, which was kind of big, but yeah, they, they lost it back to him really quick. Um, I, I thought they could have done a lot more too with all the entire, it was, it's kind of, they didn't really fit the WWF at that time though. They were a much different team. Than we were used to seeing. At least a, as far as a push team. There's always good working teams in the promotion. But um, as far as ones getting pushed to the titles. Um, the Busters. I guess just because they're cachet. They had no choice but to do it. But uh, yeah. I think they could have got a lot more out of them too. Yeah.
1: So any closing thoughts on this Survivor Series show? That's the main event. Um, the well, match itself. Not not a lot. Yeah. Warrior pinning Heenan. I think. Send the crown home happy. Yeah. I do have one closing
0: thought. All right. So this is the first time that ultimate warrior goes on after Hulk
1: Hogan. hmm.
0: Knowing what you know now, and that's of course unfair because you have all the hindsight. Should they have turned the warrior heel for WrestleMania six and just had Hogan beat him?
1: I don't think so. Okay. Um, Just from what I remember, um, most of my friends at school, and of course I'm in elementary school at this point, but everyone loved the Warrior around that time period. And we liked Hogan too, but like Warrior was the new cool thing that I feel like most of the young kids, at least around me, were, they were really into the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, I was, I mean, I remember going into that match, I was definitely a Warrior guy. Yeah.
0: myself i remember my dad asking me oh who do you think's gonna win ultimate warrior hulk hogan i'm like oh you know i hope warrior but stupid hulk hogan always wins maybe a, the first bit of smart markiness that i ever <laughs> espoused there but uh, yeah it, it just it's funny because it really seems is, is and we're going to talk about this when we get to 1990 in the next episode um i just kind of wanted to offer a teaser that you know the narrative and it's largely correct is the warrior failed is the champion in Hogan's footsteps. Um, you know, he was not the baby face star that they wanted him to be, but coming out of this show, even as lame as this show may have been. And in the next couple months, you would have thought it was going to work.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, there were some signs before WrestleMania six that the crowd was favoring Hogan. And it might not be a good idea. Like as the, as the event drew near, but Hogan's second title run, I thought was, you know, I, I talked about it at the top here when we started talking about the show. I thought was just kind of done incorrectly. You know, they, they went back to him too quickly. I wonder if there would have been such a rush to find a new babyface champion like Warrior had they not gone to Hogan all the way back at Mania. You know, like Hogan, yeah. if he just won the title at SummerSlam, like I was saying, hey, he's a little fresher here. Maybe there's not the rush to get to Warrior.
1: Mm-hmm. Just food for thought. Wasn't? Didn't Hogan leave right after Mania Six to do like a movie? Was it Suburban Commando or something like that? Uh,
0: yeah, they shot the injury angle with Earthquake. Um, and remember, they shamelessly like you could like I don't know like didn't like send money or so, like something like the get well Hulk campaign or something like that. Yeah, it was, it, like yeah. send money and like beg him to come back. What a scam by Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I don't know if there was money involved, but it was like there was a get well Hulk. Uh, campaign, yeah. Where they kept him off TV for a while, but all it did was put more heat on him uh, and not mm-hmm. Warrior. I mean, when, yeah. by the time that SummerSlam rolled around, Hogan was still clearly the most over babyface in the promotion. I just, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting thing. Like with hindsight, and obviously it's a lot easier, you know, m- m- you know, to you turn Warrior heel and and just have Hogan beat him at WrestleMania. So.
1: You could, I mean, yeah, it's some fantasy booking. You could, do, you could make the argument and rewrite that whole year of 1990, which I know is what you do in your spare time.
0: Yes, I actually do quite a bit. <laughs> a very odd way to spend my spare time. I'm going to bring this up again when we get to 1990 in the next episode, too, because I think when you um, juxtapose how, to, how hot Warrior was in 89 before he won the title with how much he had cooled the following year as champion, it's, there's some arguments to be
1: made. Yeah. Well that is a good transition. And uh we'll be coming back at you guys with our next installment of the Survivor Series flashback. And uh well, we're gonna start with nineteen ninety. Not quite sure how far we'll go in that show. We'll see how it goes, but we're we're looking at covering three to four uh Survivor Series events. Who knows, maybe we can get through ninety five. Some of those mid nineties ones yeah. lack intrigue and headlines. So my hope was to go ninety to ninety five next time. But we'll, okay, yeah, so, I'll all for it. So uh like we've been saying on Top Rope Nation now the, these Survivor Series flashbacks they're going to be Patreon exclusive. We want to give you guys a reason to support the show whether it's a dollar a month or 2 dollars a month or whatever you want. But just just to show you appreciate the show and you want more content from us. This is kind of a bonus deal we're doing on the side um but we we always like putting out more content um another option that has been on the table is to do some pay-per-view post shows maybe even some live broadcasts through uh maybe like a google hangout kyle we may have to get on the uh the old webcam do a uh, live video cast that would be oh. for patreon only subscribers i'll have to put pants on for that one <laughs> So, if you head on over to patreon.com slash top rope nation, you can pledge some support to the show and help that happen. And we'll be back with you for uh, the Survivor Series flashback number two and maybe even a pay per view post show after this year's Survivor Series. So, with that being said, I'm Ryan Drosty, topropepress.com. He is Kyle Ross, and we'll catch you guys next time. Peace.